Keith Thompson, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Nick. Great to be back. It's been a while since we've done this. It's been a very long time. Um, you are one of the, uh, probably the most reoccurring guests here. Um, and we've had lots of epic conversations. Uh, but this is the first one in a while. And um, this is also, I've, my audience has grown a little bit and expanded because of the blog. So uh, I was thinking, let's start off with just a little introduction to you and uh, to our relationship. So I can mention that uh, you are a author of um, many amazing books, including Angels and Aliens, which we had an entire two and a half hour discussion on before, and um, everyone should definitely check out. Um, we know each other through Paul Hederman, which most people that read my blog or um, who have watched or li listened to this podcast would know about. We met through Paul Hederman uh, at a satsang, and uh, I think we probably had our first conversation at the coffee shop after after a talk one day and just been talking ever since. So um, that's a little intro to, to Keith, very, very brief intro to Keith. And uh, if you want to hear more of his story, you can check out some of our past podcast conversations. But um, today, uh, I wanted to meet with you to talk because I had a very intense recent experience as we were just discussing off, off recording before. We could call it a near-death experience. And you are the guy in my life that is the, like in so many other fields, you are the expert in that world, we could say, the near-death experience. And um, you have lots of very interesting thoughts and insights on that. So I, I wanted to come today to um, share my story with you and see your insights. And you also have had a similar um, near-death experience. And we can share that and just talk about that, talk about death, talk about mortality. And uh, how's that sound? That's that, that sounds good. And, you know, and I, I'll, I'll take the expert uh, designation uh, lightly, and I know you mean it lightly. Because um, there are experiences you have that have the effect of showing you how little you do know <laughs> and how that's just okay. <laughs> that's really an okay place to be. Yeah, and the the edge between life and death is one of those. Um, I don't know many people who do do come back from a an encounter with the with mortality, uh, who are really convinced that they have a lot of answers to give. Oh, actually, there are. There can be. Mm -hmm. There, that's one way to hold it. I notice there are some people who have a deep encounter with that and come back with great metaphysical details and might be because they got them you know there's there is the sense of um in those big experiences stuff gets downloaded and there are successive downloads that happen and many of the downloads of a death experience which i i refer to them i refer to the experience very often as a death experience because you're encountering death you're encountering what the your whole being experienced as the end, yeah. impending mortal threat. That satisfies it. And that results in the downloading or can result in, and I use the word downloading metaphorically, of course, but a lot of big files get landed on your operating system yeah. that uh, are of the kind that you can spend years, you know, going on spiritual quests to seek. Yeah. 
and you have an encounter with life and death such that you get a big download or a series of files and they take a long time. They keep your computer, you know, trudging and trying to unpack and they're too big <laughs> and they have to unpack and unzip. I guess that's the word that comes to mind. It takes a long time to unzip a file. So yeah. anyway, that's, that's just a big entree to, yeah, let's have this conversation. Who knows where, where we'll go with it. You most recently had a very arduous night coming home from the theater because yes. we could say you what you you going out to see a, a comedian you like a, a podcaster yeah yeah yes oh that's a good other good uh little uh story i'm gonna tell you but yes so i was i was coming home from seeing a comedian i love the, uh, you bringing up the metaphor of download because there has been some big downloads or some files that i've been unpacking um i uh wrote an article about the event, which was part of my way of processing and, and unpacking um, some of those, those hard to define and hard to articulate messages and, and lessons that came from that experience. And uh, I think today could be a, another example of um, you guys watching me in real time, trying to unpack and articulate what happened and put this into words. So. Um, let's give it a shot. So, yeah, I went to a, a comedy show to see Duncan Trussell, um, one of my favorite thinkers, philosophers, comedians uh, for almost a decade now. Um, I've listened to countless hours of his podcast, Duncan Trussell Family Hour. He's been on Joe Rogan probably more times than I can count, at least a dozen times. They're their best buddies. He actually used to live with Joe Rogan. Um, when he was, yeah, he went through a bad breakup and, uh, this is all pre podcast when they were just comedians together, he went through a bad breakup, had nowhere to live. And he lived at Joe Rogan's house for, for some time. Um, so, uh, he's just one of those very interesting, very deep, uh, thoughtful people. And I finally, for, for the first time in nine years, got a chance to see him live. I went with my, my very good friend and his brother. Uh, the show started in San Francisco at about 9 p.m. It was a late show. It was the last show uh, on his his visit to San Francisco. Night was absolutely fantastic. Um, this is a little detail I have not shared with you um, or any of the, the podcast listeners. After the show, um, when we were standing in line before the show, we heard some guys yelling up at a window. Um, it was at Cobb's Comedy uh, club which is an all brick building and there's like one little window there some guy in line was yelling up at the window and we heard duncan trussell yelling down at him he has a very distinct voice if you've heard it once it's kind of like hey man like very hippie you know stoner sounding voice and they're you know having a little conversation we said oh whoa there's duncan that's probably the dressing room so we go in we watch the show it was fantastic we come out afterwards and my my good buddy alonzo who's also been on the podcast twice um said hey i'm gonna get you to talk to duncan trussell right another little detail this is one week after my birthday after turning 33 he goes it's a birthday present to you i'm gonna get you to talk to duncan trussell and i, I was like okay man. i didn't think twice about it i was like go for it i'm not gonna stop you so the window was pretty high up it was about nine or 10 feet off the ground. I had no chance of being able to get to it. My buddy is about six, one, you know, pretty athletic. He can jump. So he jumps up and hit taps on the window and a couple of times. And I'm sitting there a little embarrassed, you know, 
<laughs> like, okay, man, come on, let's go on and go grab some burgers or whatever. And he, he tapped a third time and who, but Duncan Trussell himself comes up to the window, opens up and is down looking at us. And we were like, Whoa, what's up, man? So good to meet you. And I said, uh, I said, Hey, my name's Nick. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for nine years. And I told him, this is embarrassing, but I said, it's on my vision board to podcast with you. I actually have on my digital vision board, I have Duncan Trussell, a couple other people that I want to podcast with. And he down out the window goes, oh, that's awesome, man. And he told me his email, his personal email. Whoa. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And which I'm not going to disclose here. He says, email me at and he said it and i took out my phone and i wrote it down he said we're gonna make it happen man we're gonna make it happen that's awesome man love you man and, you know it's a little 30 30 second encounter so we we left there feeling high as a kite whoa we just talked to some controls whoa i'm gonna i'm gonna podcast with them one of my dreams come true we're very excited we went and ate some burgers um and then i was back in my car by maybe about one o'clock in the morning Show got out about midnight. I drive home to my my home in Oakland, um, 24th and Telegraph. And I parked about four blocks away. I I park in this little parking lot area. So my car is not exposed to, you know, getting broken into and all that. And I started walking home. Um, And I was about half a block from my front door when I had noticed three men uh, come from around the corner uh, of the same street and sort of saw that, you know, it looked like it could get dangerous quick. I was sort of in one of those spots. I couldn't, I was halfway down the block. There was nowhere to go the other way. My best shot was to try to get, get to my front door. And one of the men crossed the street, popped out from around a car, opened up his jacket and pulled a gun out, stuck it in my face. And he said, give me all your shit, empty your pockets. Um, and that was, that was the first time I read a gun pointed at my, at my face. It was very, uh, it's hard to put into words, but I just remember thinking, okay, give them, give them everything you have. Obviously nothing you have is worth more than your life. So I reach into my pockets and then one of the other three men, had snuck around. I was so focused on the guy with the gun in front of me. I didn't even notice. And he grabbed my arms as my hands were down in my pockets and sort of bear hugged me and picked me up off the ground. So I'm a, I'm a little guy. I'm about five foot nine. Um, yeah, I'm sure he was probably well over six feet, very big, very strong squeeze me. I, I had no hope, but maybe to kick my legs, you know, um, and the guy with, with the gun, I was holding the gun, took his other hand and reached into my pockets, grabbed my phone, um, my wallet, my keys, and noticed that I had a, a car key, a Honda car key. And he said, where's your car? And took the handle of the gun, the butt of the gun and hit me on my cheek. And the first hit, I, I didn't see it coming, obviously. I mean, who would? Um, and it was pretty disorienting. My glasses flew off uh, and I, I, all of a sudden the, the seriousness of this sort of, you know, I, as we had sort of talked about ahead of time, 
it's one thing to have a gun pointed at you, you empty your pockets, you walk away scot-free. But in that moment, it was starting to become clear to me, these guys don't really care about <laughs> my well-being at all. They're willing to, to hit me with a gun. They're willing to beat me up. Uh, this is, this is serious. I might not make it out of this. Um, and I, I, with what little, you know, composure I still had, I said, my car is about four blocks away from here. Um, and it's, it's locked away. You're not going to be able to get it. And right away hit me with the barrel or the handle of the gun again on the other side of my cheek. And I, I, <laughs> a little morbid or whatever but i joke that it almost felt like getting crucified because i couldn't even bring my hands up to cover my face because i was there being held down it could be said that you turned the other cheek <laughs> but i won't say that no one would ever dare say that in a moment like this it would be completely inappropriate <laughs> so I, I won't say it and it won't even be i'm gonna I, i'm gonna say that i got crucified and i turned the other cheek <laughs> fuck it it already happened <laughs> I'm going to claim that. Next time I want to turn the cheek before the crucifixion because <laughs> yeah, that's the proper sequence. <laughs> that's very good, Keith. Very good. <laughs> it's like the old story about the guy who was uh, tarred and feathered and ridden out of town on a rail. Yeah. And he was later asked, how did you feel about that? What do you think? He said, well, if it weren't for the honor of it, I would have just as soon passed it up. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of something like that. <laughs> so, okay. So, all right. I'm, uh, I'm getting bear hugged. Eight, eight, two handles of the gun on either, on either cheek. And, uh, he again pointed the barrel right in my face, being aggressive, obviously trying to scare me into getting, bringing him to my car, which I wasn't against. I just, you know, I had, I was trying to explain to them the situation. Um, and when I think back on it, it it's, it's obviously hard to, um, to remember something that intense and, you know, your memory gets, you know, twisted by, by right. time and all that and the retelling and all that. But that was, that was the moment where I remember feeling how, uh, how close to death I really was because I seen the desperateness in this man, I've seen the, the, the lack of concern, obviously he's beating the shit out of me. He wants to get this car and he might kill me uh, in the pursuit of wanting to get this car or just, or just out of frustration, you know, out of anger. And I'm looking down the barrel of the gun and I remember thinking, oh yeah, this, this, this could be it. And as I wrote in my article, the, the thing that was at the front of my mind was oh, like this, feeling a sadness and sh and sort of like what a shame it was that my daughters weren't going to ha have a dad like man it's going to end like this you know for, for kind of for what you know just walking home at two in the morning just just for some for a car for some for a wallet for a phone my daughters are going to grow up without a dad and I remember feeling really sad about that really you know hurt um and uh, I sort of got my wits about me and I said, my car is four blocks from here. Are you going to carry me for four blocks? <laughs> Which I got a little bit of pride for 
<laughs> even being able to have a little bit of attitude right <laughs> starkiness right. a little bit of spunk yeah like hey this guy's got some energy he's got you something gotta, going here you, you want to join our group <laughs> i said call him Vinny. what's your name Vinny? <laughs> you gonna carry me four blocks and he hit me two more times actually hit me and then i said you can keep hitting me i'm trying to tell you my car's four blocks away and i'm bleeding out my nose i'm you know it's very swollen um he hit me again and the during those last two hits it was again that was when i go back in time when everything sort of slowed down where I had sort of gone through the, it's a shame that my daughters are going to grow up without a dad. And then I also had this sense, this feeling of, you know, I, I, and I've talked with you about this. I've talked on this podcast, actually my last one with Richard Lang, I talked about mortality and that I think about death every day. Um, and it's not from a place of anxiety. It's from a place of um, prioritizing my time and, and, um, my attention and, and how I live this life. You know, I, I talk about the deathbed um, uh, meditation of like, okay, if I was on my deathbed, how would I feel about how I've lived my life and making decisions sort of based on that as far as, you know, what's meaningful and, and, and what's worthy of, of my time and, and how I live my life. And that work that I sort of do daily seem to come into that moment. And I remember thinking, this is what you practice for. And it's here. It's not practice anymore. You know, this, this isn't a test. <laughs> this is this is real life. This is this is um, this is the lab. And it might be over. And I remember feeling and it's okay, like, you're good. And then when I look back on it, I didn't, I, I didn't beg for my life. And I, I I felt fear. There was fear there, but it was like the, the peace at a certain point sort of enveloped it of just like, yeah, there's fear and this is, this might be it. And it's really actually okay. No, it's a shame, but it's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is such a blessing that moment, you know, as, as objectively from the outside as, as tragic as the moment seems, that was a great gift that, I walked away and who knows, maybe the next time I face death, maybe that won't be there, you know, but, but this time it very um, undoubtedly was. And, uh, and I feel blessed to have that moment of, oh, wow, I faced it. I, I looked, I looked death in the eye and, and I, I felt okay. I felt content. It was really, really cool. So um, I had taken four shots by this point and they were getting very frustrated and um, uh, I saw sort of the lights, uh, red and red lights of a police car. And I heard one of the guys say, oh, shit. Um, I think there was three of them. So I think one was holding me, one had the gun. I don't know, but I assumed the third was sort of on the lookout, sort of a watch. And I heard somebody say, oh, shit, cops. And the guy was holding me, threw me against a chain link fence. And I bounced off the fence and hit the concrete. Um, scraped myself up pretty bad on that fall. I looked down and I saw blood dripping down onto the the sidewalk and I heard them run off. I didn't even know which direction they ran. And I just sort of, you know, took a moment and I looked up and, 
and I again had this sense of, of like relief of, oh my God, I'm still here. Um, and I know you'll get this. And I know some of my more non-dual um, listeners will get this. The lights are still on. I remember thinking that I was, <laughs> I was prepared for the lights to go out for the TV to shut off. And I was sort of like, okay, it's coming. And it didn't come. The lights were still on. And I very vividly felt so alive in that moment of like, yeah, the contrast of facing the possibility of the lights going out and they didn't go out. The lights were on. I was there. And I remember feeling great gratitude at that moment. Um, and then I sort of was disoriented and my glasses had fallen off. Thank God they didn't break. I went and even found them on the ground. That was a little miracle. Put them on. And then pretty quick reality hit of like, okay, I'm out here in the streets of Oakland at two in the morning. <laughs> I'm beat up. I don't have keys to get into my apartment. I don't have keys to start my car. I don't have a phone to call anybody. Um, I don't have a wallet. I have no identification. Um, I need to, you know, survival kicked in hard, you know, within a few seconds. And uh, I seen a, a, I was on a street that sort of dead end uh, to the parallel street up here ahead of me about a, 50 feet or so. And I seen a cop car go past right in front of me. And I just sprinted. This is another detail we talked about earlier. During the whole ordeal, my shoe had fallen. One of my shoes had fallen off. And uh, even after seeing the cop car and him throwing me to the ground, someone picked up one of my shoes and threw it over uh, into the parking lot that was fenced off so I couldn't get to it. So I'm sprinting after the cop car with one shoe. <laughs> and um, desperately thinking I need to get their attention because if they take off, I'm out here alone, you know? And luckily uh, I got to the side of the car. I waved them down and they came out and, you know, took a police report. Um, they called the, an ambulance. Paramedics came, they checked me out. Uh, he said, it doesn't look like my nose is broken, but I shouldn't touch it anyway. Um, commented that I have a, I must have pretty strong nose genes because it seemed to take a pretty good beating when my nose didn't break. So I can't say that I have a strong chin, but I have a strong nose at least. Um, and so they cleaned me up a little bit. Um, I, uh, I ended up getting a ride over to my buddy's house. This is all an article I wrote and uh, knocked, on, knocked on his window. He let me in very fortunately or else I would have, had one, would have been sleeping out on the street that night. He let me in, my savior, Willie, who's also been on the podcast. And uh, I cleaned myself up in the kitchen. He looked like he's seen a ghost when I opened the, when he opened the door for me. <laughs> he saw me and you know, I gave him a hug. I went and cleaned myself up, grabbed an ice pack, put it on my head. And then I, um, we worked for the same company. And it was my work phone that got stolen. And I said, hey, can you give me your work phone? I need to call our boss and let her know that my work phone was stolen. And just started all the logistics getting my phone canceled, getting my, my cards turned off. Um, they, they had a, about two hours to use my cards and they didn't. It's funny. They finally tried at McDonald's the next morning at 8 a.m. <laughs> so they, they did? They did, yeah. But I had my card shut off by then. So, <laughs> so the whole, I joke, the whole thing cost me 300 bucks because I had to get my car rekeyed. That was the most expensive part. Um, and they didn't even get a... a a uh, breakfast burrito out of it. No, exactly. I got, you know, got away with a lot more. They didn't get much. I got nothing really in the whole ordeal. Another, I forgot another very important piece. Um, uh, 
when uh, after the beating, my, I stood up and I reached into my pockets to see if if I had uh, still had anything, you know, because they reached in and grabbed, so maybe they missed something, right? And I reached in and they were empty, uh, but for this coin, I put this in the article too. Um, this will be for the people that watch us on YouTube. Memento Mori coin here. And it says, you could leave life right now here on the back. So this coin that I keep in my pocket happened to be the one thing they didn't take. <laughs> and just, Memento Mori is Latin for? Uh, is Latin for uh, remember that you will die. And I, I looked at that. This was even before I chased the cop car down. I looked at that and I, I kind of even like laughed to myself a little bit. <laughs> like the irony of like, yeah, no shit. Remember that you could die. I went through that whole thing. And the one thing that was left in my pocket was that coin, which I, which I still have. Um, and one more detail. I, uh, I did end up getting my shoe back. Um, one of the security guards grabbed it, had blood all over it. He said they were, we were wondering, we were thinking we were going to throw it away, but we kept it just in case. And I went, I know the security guard. And he, it's funny. I was going to ask you, I thought that was going to be come from left field. And did you, what, what about the shoe? <laughs> I got the shoe back and I, and I cleaned up, I cleaned the blood off and uh, I'm still wearing them actually. <laughs> so Wow. Wow. Well, yeah. one, one thing I want, which just came to mind as you were telling me, you were at one moment looking at dying. I mean, you, you were aware, when I said looking at dying, you were, you were aware, uh, metacognitively aware, as they say, not just aware, but aware that you were aware yes. Yes. that this could be it. And in that moment, I was just struck by you looked at death and death was an object. Suddenly, it was something in your field. And as you know from the, the non-dual teachings, anything you can be aware of, <clears throat> aware of, that's not who you are. It's not, you're not at the effect of it in the same way. Beautiful. So in one moment, you're looking at death, it's, oh, I could have died. And you were already through it. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, what you were, you're, you know, the awareness of being alive pre-existed the whole event you're having a great evening more than being alive you were having a fantastic evening yeah you were aware of being aware I'm like wow life is great and then you had a moment when you reflected on it could be all over and that thought that it could be all over was just something that you became aware of and you and it wasn't you you yeah. were the one before this happened during it happening and when it was all done and you looked at death and saw that it was just this idea that you, that you have about what the end is. Yeah. So it's not to put it in any box. No, it's a fantastic say, insight. You looked at death as, as something from the place that was never threatened by anything. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me of that, that course. What's the first line of the course in miracles? You, you've, you've quoted it before. Yeah. Um, um, um that which that which can be uh, <laughs> no, I, I, there's it's a two line yeah uh, nothing real can be threatened yeah and nothing is unreal yeah i think the second part nothing is nothing, sure un I nothing unreal nothing, exists. nothing unreal exists. nothing uh nothing un 
Nothing unreal can be no. Nothing, nothing real can be threatened. Nothing real can be threatened. And nothing nothing unreal, unreal exists. exists. Okay, that yeah. it's such a it, it has such depth to it that it's kind of hard to call it call it every yeah. every now yeah. and then. Yeah, not but, that, yeah nothing that is real can be threatened, and nothing unreal exists. Yeah, it's a great thing to have on a coin. Yeah, exactly. it, but it's in moments like this, it comes home. Yeah. No, it really does. That's a beautiful insight. That's something I, I didn't quite connect to, um, just even in my retelling of it. Um, and just as you said it, I can I can bring myself back to that moment. And that which was aware of the threat of death, that which was aware of, you know, the end, right? What what the story I was telling of the end or the lights going off, um, that was untouched. That was yes. yeah, that, that and that, untouchable. Untouchable. Yeah. And even the idea that the lights would have gone off is, is, is questionable. Yeah, exactly. The sense that they would have gone off for you, this is what we all worry about. I mean, that's, this is the greatest, I believe the fear of death, the fear of being annihilated, the fear of not existing, I, I just based on my own experience, uh, broadly defined, I think it's the core of all death, uh, the, the, core, the core fear. Yeah. It is the meta fear. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, she'll reject me. He'll reject me. I'll, I'll be fired. I mean, all those are little deaths. Yeah, it all comes back to our our own annihilation. To our and own, our, our, our own unexistence in a way. Our own non-existence. And in fact, yeah. um, what a powerful force that has been in human history. The religions yeah. of the world figured out. I don't want to put it too cynically, but they they realized they held you could get. Um, what was were you were you buy? Uh, what is it you buy? Uh, Buy your what you you pay the shirt because it's a letter A. Yeah, I want to say Um, admonitions. No, you buy absolution. Absolutions, yes. So you you buy your way out of all your sins, so you won't. So you when you you won't die, or you'll be you'll go to paradise. When you when you win when you do die, you'll go to paradise instead of burn for eternity. (laughs) So the threat of so the church figured out we could we we are the intermediary. Mm -hmm. So go through us. And you'll get to the right place when it's all over. The deep teaching of all this is you probably, I don't know which of the great mystics said this, but it's something like, if you die before you die, when you come to die, you will not die. Yeah. It's, it's that essential teaching from Plato, mm-hmm. put death on your left shoulder, let death be your teacher, Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda, let death be your teacher. Um, mm-hmm. It is the you are stalking death, stalk, death is stalking you, but come to terms with that you know, and, and practice dying. Philosophy yeah. is the practice of dying. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And that's Buddhism, right? You, you know, learning, learning how to live is learning how to die. And, and the, all the practice is, is basically to die well. And, you know, there, there's a reason that that theme comes in again and again. It made me think too of, um, you, you know, you mentioned the, uh, if you die before you die, then when you die, you 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 won't you will basically. not die. You will not die. That uh, I, that's I think the way that that book. Um, I can't think of the name of it, but it's on uh, the Eleusinity Mysteries. The Eleusinian Mysteries. Eleusinian Mysteries. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that there's an idea that all these ancient, like Plato and and uh, Marcus Aurelius and and all these great philosophers back in the day went and took some form of psychedelic, you know, this is, there's a lot of evidence for this, but it's not, um, 
anything absolute that they there's there's air got in the bread and that you know this is similar uh to lsd or there may have taken something similar so uh, psilocybin mushrooms and that basically all these um powerful leaders and very wise philosophers in the past did some sort of psychedelic shamanic trips you know whether it was induced by chemicals or maybe it was induced by you know breath work or all the yeah, any yeah. Sort of other stuff right and the the whole theme in that again is is facing facing your death facing your annihilation right and i think uh this is something we've talked about before the fact that i've done heavy dose psychedelics um in a way felt like that helped prepare me for that moment as well um uh, I also, it's funny, it's something else I want to talk with you about. Um, just two weeks prior to that, I had done my first uh, holotropic breathing um, breathwork journey, which is like a two hour thing. And that was as intense and as psychedelic as five grams of psilocybin. It was, I really went some places with that. The guy who led it did a really good job too. And there was music and a lot of stuff involved and all that. And so, you know, that, that was very cathartic. I was in a room full of probably over a hundred people laying on the floor on yoga mats, doing breath work with a blindfold on and people were screaming and crying and it was very cathartic, you know, and laughing and all that. I didn't quite have that um, um, cathartic of an experience, but I definitely went some places and, and looked at my life as an entirety and, you know, the whole human experience and what, what we're here to do and all that. And um, I'm sure that, whole exercise helped because two weeks later I, you know, faced it in a, in a non-consensual way. You know, I went in there and, and breathed my way there, but in this case it was forced upon me. And yeah, uh, I think it's a perfect thing to cite that, that preliminary, the breath work and, and also psychedelics, because what's, uh, what's remarkable about psychedelics, we tend to assume that because we get lit up in a psychedelic trip, it's the, it's the most luminous, hyper-real, hyper-luminous thing that we can imagine. We would tend to assume the brain is in over, in, in moving into overtime. Mm -hmm. yeah. But in fact, it's actually uh, all the, you know, EM, the, uh, the electromagnetic, uh, all the measurements of the brain yeah. indicate that the brain is remarkably quiescent. Doing less work. Does less work. And in fact, what gets taken offline is the, DMN, the default mode network, mm -hmm. both in psychedelic trips and meditation, and I think holotropic breathwork. What, what that, the significance of that is to say it's taken offline, that part of the brain that gets shut down is the part of the brain, the default mode network, that correlates with the sense of an executive function or the sense of me. The doer. Yeah. The doer, the sense of a separate self, the yeah. illusion of a separate self, the enduring illusion, the pragmatic illusion, not, yeah. not bad thing to know that you are a separate self when you're driving a car or to assume that you are or going to the grocery or opening the door for someone after you, no, after you. Um, but it went, and, and that is why very often what happens in these experiences is a sense of annihilation. Yeah. Ego, that's what ego death is. Mm -hmm. You're not really dying, but your sense of who you are is under assault. And it was, so you're right. You had a practice. You had a practice. You practiced dying. You went to you. The Eleusinian mysteries, whether or not they did involve psychedelics, I think they did too. But mm -hmm. even if they didn't, they had they had procedures, uh, blindfolding. Yeah. You'd be taken out of the light into a dark area, or into a dark area, and then into the light. They mm -hmm. were. They were. They were. There were exercises 
meant to induce altered states of consciousness. And almost certainly, uh, ergo was part of that. Yeah. So you had an experience of um, a practice session. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, I, I, I thank you for the insights and for being so gracious with your, with your insights on this. Um, I wanted to give you the opportunity um, if you're willing to share your death experience, um, because uh, I I just think it's apropos for exactly what we're talking about, and I'm well, sure it will lead I'd us. Be to glad to. I remember when I first shared it with you. I was I'd known you for a long time, and yeah. part of the habit I'd gotten into. Well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll tell, I'll, tell I'll, I'll give you I'll give you the summary. Uh, as you as you know, you know the full story. Uh, it happened when I was in my twenties. I went uh, with friends from California to Hawaii, uh, Oahu. We had run the Hawaii, the Honolulu Marathon. That's what we went there for. It was the day after finishing the marathon. Uh, whether or not you're a distance runner or not, or completed a marathon, if you've had some kind of a rite of passage in your life, climbing a mountain, running a marathon, uh, what some sort of ordeal, uh, finishing a 10K walk, depending on your condition, can be a real rite of passage. Well. We had all finished the marathon, and the next day we went to Sunset Beach, legendary North Oahu Beach, where the National Surfing Championships are held every, or at that time were, I think every year. Uh, one of the things you notice when you arrive at Sunset Beach is there are signs posted widely, and they are permanent painted metallic signs. They're not just signs for that day. And they say, don't go in or be very careful. Uh, these are not body surfing, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, There's some kind of rhyme. Um, don't go in unless you can swim or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> in any case, I mentioned the marathon because we were all feeling pretty heroic. We yeah. were in our 20s mm -hmm. and we'd had a heroic experience. So Invincible. you see the signs that say, don't go in. And you said, that doesn't apply to me. Yeah. So long story short, I went and we all went and did some preliminary body surfing. And I just kind of, I love body surfing, by the way, I, in, in warm water is one of my favorite things to do uh, off Hawaii or Southern California. It just, it doesn't get much better than that warm, salty water in which, in which your body floats. So I uh, got carried out further than I thought. And it was a combination of riptides taking me on, by the way, I'm, I'm a kid from Ohio. So I didn't grow up with the insights of how to deal with the beach. I can tell anybody now listening, if you're ever in trouble in riptides, which are going from the ocean out toward the beach, swim lateral, yeah. swim to the side, because a riptide is not a continuous it's, thing. It's always it's, stuck with me since you told me that. Yeah. It's a rivulet. And yeah. the more you're fighting against it, you're just in a corridor. Swim to the side of the corridor. Let it take you out and then swim back in. So I was finding not only the riptides, which are, are tied to pulling you down under riptides, um, and then the big waves coming over, crashing, surf type, the things that surfers get on. Yeah. So um, I was caught between those two moment, those momenta, and was getting exhausted. And I can similar to the description you have of a moment of utter clarity. I remember turning around, I mean, turning around, and by the way, fighting, 
struggling. My friends on the beach trying, get in, Keith, get in. Um, remember turning and looking at one of the, looking out toward the infinity, out toward the ocean, away from the beach, and yeah. seeing a crasher, a curling wave. It's like something out of mythology, yeah. like the Titanic, that, 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 a Titanic wave, yeah. a Titanic yeah. mythic force, Moby Dick level, okay, <laughs> crashing over me. And I said, I remember saying, again, metacognitively, knowing that I know yeah. I'm going to die now. Mm. And it absolutely slammed me probably against not only the water, but against the, 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 the sand. And the next thing I was aware of, I was rising out of that. But it wasn't normal rising. I was rising above the ocean. And I was, if you can imagine, when you look in some direction, you can see 360 degrees, which, you know, we can't do in our bodies. Yeah. You know, we can do this, like mm -hmm. this. Yeah, but, yeah. There was a sense of, of, a, of the panoramic view, utter freedom, yeah. sense of peace, serenity. And I looked down at the body in the ocean, which I had identified as myself. And it was being tossed by the waves. I looked off to the side at my friends, focusing on the body. When I say I look down, it's the only way I can put it. I look down. The sense of I had become everything. That sense of I was the panoramic 360. Yeah. And so non-located. Non-located and everywhere, everywhere at once, yeah. everywhere at once and no place in particular. <laughs> and I remember then in the next thought I said, so death isn't death. Mm. Dead isn't dead. Dead isn't dead. I said, I'm dead. And then I'm not dead. Dead isn't dead. I go, I, I said, this is, I mean, it was, and it was a sense of irony. <laughs> it's pretty By good. the way, I was a kid at the, then, at the time, 20s. I didn't have a child. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a, even a girlfriend at the time, I don't think. So there, I didn't, I wasn't saying goodbye to anybody, really. I actually had the thought in this sequence that there would be a funeral held. And they would be, there'd be a lot of nail, you know, gnashing of teeth over some scenario that they didn't need to worry about. Because I was fine. Yeah. And everything is fine and you'll be fine. And there's no end to this. This is just coming through. Next thing I heard was my, when my friends on the beach, one in particular named Mary, Mary and Jim were a couple and they were there together. And Mary and I were just buddies. Jim and I were buddies too. Just a good platonic friendship with both of them. So Mary was on the beach and she was anguished when I say, and, and I could hear her voice like talking at the, at the pitch that I'm talking. She was saying to one of our friends who was also part of our party, she said, I told him not to go out there. I told him it was too rough. Why didn't he listen? And I was aware of hearing that. So I went to her. I don't know what that really meant, Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. but I became next to her and I said, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Not only, she wasn't hearing me, I could hear her. And I realized that's the way it worked. Oh, I'm out here. I'm dead. I'm talking to Keith. The body was still getting Keith. The around. body was out there. Okay. And I don't know if Keith had, so I'll never know. I don't care whether it was a clinical death, how mm -hmm. long my heart did stop or didn't stop. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a friend of mine who is a teacher in the Rudolf Steiner esoteric tradition. Uh, 
I once told this story. He said, Keith, you need to stop calling this your near-death experience. It was a death experience. Yeah. You had existentially died for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. It was, was your death. So, so anyway, I sort of let go of the near-death thing and say, it's a strange kind of hedge, yeah. the near-death thing. It's and also, so here's the funny thing, Nick, and I, I told you this. This was um, about four years earlier. A guy named Raymond Moody had written a book that would become famous called Life After Life in which he introduced the near-death experience based on a compilation of these kinds of events that had been reported since classical antiquity. There are, near, there are death experiences in mythology, in the great philosophers, but in our materialistic society, it's not possible, so it doesn't exist. Ever since then, by the way, I've had a great deal of interest in things that are not possible, but that still happen to exist. Yeah. As you know, including my current writing. Yeah. So officially impossible things that's, that actually happen anyway. So I had never heard of the near-death experience. I wasn't having something that had been prepared, my mind had been prepared for. Oprah had not yet made this famous. Or if she had, if yeah, popular no. culture had imbibed this, I was busy at 24, 25, too busy to love living. To be you weren't interested. primed. You weren't. You weren't primed in the way that most people probably today would have been hearing. That's about. right. That's right. And therefore, what uh, what I now re what I later came to realize fit the the sequence of a scenario I had no sense of, including going through a tunnel, sense of being surrounding me, luminous, a brilliant light, coming to a place that felt like a celestial place. Another way I don't feel really primed. I grew up as a nominal Christian, uh, Episcopalian, mm -hmm. which is almost redundant, nominal, because it's not a real passionate. Episcopalianism is not uh, uh, evangelical. I think there might be some wing of it that is, but it's pretty cool, calm, and collected. Like Catholicism uh, perched at the highest end of the Protestant tradition. That's one of the Episcopal faith. A lot of symbology, stained glass windows, incense, and, mm -hmm. and chanting. But I had no sense of heaven. I didn't have any beliefs about heaven. The mm. place I went to a, a place and a, the language falls short. I don't know where, where this was except here because everything is here. That was one of the conclusions that I came away with. And I saw relatives, friends in spirit bodies, luminous spirit mm. bodies, babysitter, elder people who had predeceased me with all sorts of mythological figures as well. I saw Roman, uh, Roman soldiers, strange. I mean, so it's a strange uh, assembly of mythological is, figures, eagles, yeah. birds, animals, uh, humans, uh, my grandparents, and they were welcoming me. They were jubilantly welcoming me. Mm -hmm. And I had a sense of a line. We were approaching like a beautiful, I mean, the, the, I have to say, the hyper lucidity you think mm -hmm. of your most lucid state on, on lsd or a peak experience watching the stars some night or a sunset those moments when your senses just open up well this was like that on on drugs so to speak <laughs> yeah. um, on, on uh, in spades the luminosity the the sense experiential sense of existence and consciousness and bliss as being all one thing mm -hmm. existence and awareness of existence and the bliss of the awareness of consciousness all at once. There's mm -hmm. actually a word in the 
Vedic tradition, Sachit Ananda. Mm-hmm. Sachit Ananda, bliss, consciousness, existence. Existence, oh. consciousness, and bliss as oh, one word. Same time. Yeah, as exactly. one word. Yeah. They didn't, they, you know. Separate. Western tradition went a different way uh, in terms of dividing everything up into neat categories that the mind would like because the mind is the, the rational mind is the highest that the West acknowledges exists. It's real, but mm-hmm. it's not the, it, it's not the, it's not the totality. And in any case, I didn't have the classic moment of being told that it wasn't my time, but I was in the presence of some kind of a, of a wise force, force field that was, and I felt the sounds of machinery and humming and whirring, W-H-I-R, you know, mm. whirring and humming and of, of gears and mechanisms and, and a sense of information and insight. Yeah which was permeate and also a sense of this is who I really am. The sense of familiarity. I'd been here before. This is something close to true nature. Mm. So I was at peace. And then I was also aware. I had a sense that there was some, something that my life was about that being a body was about something. Yeah. It wasn't random. It wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't a mistake. The idea that certain traditions, the Gnostic traditions have that were sent here as a punishment? No. Mm-hmm. It can seem like it. It's, it's, I, I think it's the way that the soul, whatever you want to call the soul, is consciousness uh, as part of its adventure. Wow, what it would it be like to take form? What would mm-hmm. it be like to take form and experience the sense that things are limited? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the human limited person wants to get beyond limitations into the infinite. Well, yeah. what if the infinite is going on an incredible adventure of discovery by being seemingly separate? That's always going to put my money on. Yeah. Awakening to the recognition that you're not separate, but also that in and out, and that's the familiarity I felt. So mm. I came, next thing I knew, I'm 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 seeing again, I'm back in the body. Consciousness had returned to the body. I was swimming. I was alive. I was aware that my friends were calling me in. I was approaching them. It's like the third act of a great movie. <laughs> yeah. There's always the third act. Was it Hemingway, not Hemingway, Fitzgerald uh-huh. famously and snarkily said, there are no third acts in American lives. Uh. Oh, yes, there are. Yeah, that, <laughs> yes, wasn't that wasn't in yours. He had yeah. a pretty tragic life, with, especially with alcohol. But they're, they're that, that kind of European sensibility. There's no third act in American life. They don't finish. They don't. Cer- they don't. Certain nihilism to that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, there are. There's always a third act. In this case, there was a third act. So I'm suddenly swimming in, all bruised, all beaten up. No, no, no serious injury. Pulled mm-hmm. to the shore. Uh, I can still remember the sense, everyone gathering around, that I was now a medical problem. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, had survived. I knew, and I knew I had. And I, the first reality test I had about this was when one of my friends, a young guy named Moore, once I was sort of recovered, they had towels or had towels on me and I wasn't shivering. And um, I was, they were, it was post, post um, catastrophe treatment. Mm-hmm. Like you were going through, the police took you in and you put some ice on. This is what was going on now. And I remember him saying, kind of in the way the guys in a jocular way say, well, we, we pretty much thought we had lost you. 
that you that you'd eaten it. Yeah. And I said to him, I did. He said, he said, he just nodded. Uh-huh. He said, I did. And I came back. He said, I, I, I know you did. You came back. And I, I it was, was the first, it was yeah. the first of many recognitions that what I was saying was was absurd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I also didn't say, I didn't know to say, I had a near-death experience, like oh. they say in the books. You didn't have the framing, yeah. Didn't have the frame. And I mm-hmm. have come to recognize that, you know, whatever, you know, you say you're grateful or I appreciate. I'm actually glad I didn't have it because it set me off on a, on a journey to, to understand what it had. But I will tell you the major realization I had for quite a long time was there's that line from the German poet Goethe tell a wise man or else keep silent for the mass man will mock it right away. Mm -hmm. Tell it to other people who know, or don't tell anybody. And, you know, any, tell it to those who know refers to all the mysteries. Mm -hmm. If you have a peak experience and you tell it to your family over Thanksgiving, you're just asking for trouble. Yeah. They're not asking for that story. They're not asking for the information about your life and experience. And you don't tell it to, because the mass man, the masses will mock it right away. So I learned to keep it quiet. I didn't talk about it, but it set me off on a spiritual search for answers. And uh, I'll just sort of conclude this by saying I had the good fortune to meet Dr. Kenneth Ring, who is one of the chief uh, psychologists of the near-death experience, who followed up the books of Raymond Moody with several books of his own. And he became kind of a, a kind of a mentor or a therapist. He helped me through this. He, he, he reminded me, he said, you, you have had, you know, he, he gave me information about the near-death experience and introduced it in the, as a kind of a um, mystical experience. He put it in the frame. It's, 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 a, it's an entry into the same territory as the great mystical journeys touch on. And it mm-hmm. is, it is. I mean, I, I was still trying to make sense of it. And there was a long post-traumatic. I wasn't in a PTSD in, in an overt or acute way, but I had issues. I mean, you know, the body and mind are traumatized mm-hmm. because yeah, yeah. their sense, they, the sense of dying is resisted to say the least. There's a strong life instinct. It's built the, into the, the settings of the body. <laughs> it's built into the settings. That's yeah. what it does. That's mm-hmm. formatted for that. Mm-hmm. And then when you've been to the, oh, and it, here's, here's the key. This is um, the next day I've jumped over this, going back to the, the Hawaii, the next day after I'd had food that night and had a decent night's sleep. And the next day I was back in, back in, I was Keith again. I said to Mary, I said, let's go for a walk. Or maybe we went for a walk. And I said, you, I want to tell you something. And she said, okay, what? said, do you remember when you were at the beach watching me? She goes, yeah. She, I think, kind of wondered why I would bring that up. How would I know that? And I said, when you, yeah, I heard you say, I heard what you said. That Keith, why, why didn't he listen? I told him it was too rough. I, 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 I gave it back. I, I just played it back. Mm-hmm. She uh, was a pretty white girl, but whatever color she had in her face as a white girl left, she got very white. Yeah. yeah. White as a ghost. White as a ghost. Yeah. And she, and I looked at her and she looked at me and we both knew 
that if I, what I was saying was true, then this game is set up the way we, we think it is. Yeah. Um, and she goes, you know, like, wow, wow. And I go, yeah, I just wanted to say that. She says, well, I'm glad you did. And I, we'd be state friends. And I actually was with her near the end of her life. She died from, a, from an illness uh, much later. And I can share a story. I went to see her. She called me one time and, uh, and I knew she, that she'd had a relapse. It was involving her liver. And I said, how are you? She said, okay, I'm, I'm sick. I said, I hear, I hear you are. She said, I'm dying. I said, how's that going? And she laughed. She said, oh, you know me. I'm a hyperachiever. I'm just absolutely uh, plumbing it for everything I can. I said, well, that's absolutely important. You've got to die a very heroic death, you know. And uh, we had laughter that we'd always had. She said, could you come see me? I said, of course I could. When do you want? She said, is tomorrow possible? I said, it's the only day that I have. So I drove, it wasn't that far, you know, maybe an hour away from her. And I went to see her and we talked and I remember the flowers outside her house, just, you know, these, these memories just stand. Mm -hmm. And I had to stay a certain distance from her because of, I think either infection or oxygen or something. But she said, she said to me, um, so you really heard me that day at the beach. Wow. That's what she wanted to go back to. Yeah. I said, I, I did. And I said, she goes, um, well, that's just what I wanted to know. And I said, do you remember every other hard times in your life when, you, when it was really, really tough? And she goes, yeah. And I said, did you trust? You trusted that things would be okay. She said, yeah, I really did every time. I said, well, let's do that again. And she just, her eyes lit up and my eyes lit up and I don't remember what else we said, but I essentially gave her some kind of assurance. I didn't teach her anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't give her any aphorism. Yeah, it was a, but you it was can a trust. Question. You can trust being. And did you always trust being? And that's one of the things I realized. I don't think there's ever an end. There's an end to, you know, this, this incarnation will end, but consciousness that carries it all. Well, I will say this, I will just say this. I don't know with medical, metaphysical certainty and I don't need to know me with metaphysical certainty, but I do know what left me that day was the fear of death. Mm. And I didn't know it until I began to be around death, until I realized my attitude had changed, until I sat with my mother at hospice. And there was a part of me that is not, not worried and is, is not worried. I don't know what form it takes. I, I actually know there's some pretty good clinical evidence. A couple of psychologists have done. Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia for reincarnation. People who were born and remember lives in Indian villages, and they remember wounds they had in their bodies in the former life that correspond to birthmarks in this life. There are some really weird stuff. But I'm also aware that I was visiting with people in my post- death experience that's in a, in a context that seemed like heaven. Yeah. I don't have a trouble. I don't have to reconcile those two. Yeah. They may be different stages. It may be that the immediate post-mortem post situation is something where you can meet people. There's always one level 
where you encounter people in their spirit bodies, if you will. And then there's also a sense in which maybe that continues and then something else is reincarnated. I don't know. All I know is I've lost any fear of it. Meaning I don't know how my, the demise of this body will happen. I don't know how painful, what pain there might be, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried. I trust being, I've come to trust being. And that is something that I, uh, shared with my mom when, when she died, when she was dying, and I shared with my friend Mary. I'm not a teacher of that. I'm just a human being. But um, anyway, that's, that's the uh, that's... Re- revisiting. <laughs> beautiful, that, that beautiful story. story. Man, that's, that felt like a spiritual experience just listening to that. Um, I've quoted you on that before. I've come to trust being. I, I, I think that is the most powerful, uh, we could call it like a suggestion, We'll say someone that is facing their mortality, you know, sickness or, uh, you know, whatever's going on. And it's impossible to have a formula for some way to put them, put them at ease, you know, because it's a completely subjective first person experience going through facing your own annihilation, facing your own non-existence. But uh, personally, and I've shared it with a few people and everyone that sort of gets it, gets it. Um, I've quoted you, I've come to trust being. And one, I now remember what I said to Mary. I said, do you remember other hard times in your life? She said, yes. And you thought the worst? Yes. Did being ever let you down? That's the, that was the question. I didn't say, did you trust being? I said, did, did being, and by the way, she was spiritual already. Mm -hmm. She was, she'd become a spiritual seeker. And so, so, so the language was not as, uh, as awkward as you might think, like to trust being. She knew what I meant. She's mm-hmm. sort of existential in her, in her uh, passage. So I said, did being ever let you down? And she lit up. Yeah. She got the connection. Yes. There's no being. And that's why when, uh, you know, the, one of the topics in the philosophy of mind is, is does consciousness survive physical death? And of course, it's, it is the question. It's the, it's the perennial question. Mm-hmm. One way I've kind of framed that, and I brought it up to people, and it's sort of a reframe for them, is when I hear someone said that that's one thing they would really love to know, that consciousness survives death. I said, let me ask you this. That's like a quandary for you, right? Yeah, it's a koan. It's really something you wrestle with. I said, do you also wrestle with was whether there was consciousness before you were born? I think of the same thing. <laughs> and they go, no. Oh, I said, you were born into something that was existing, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, were your parents alive before you were? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what ends, what begins? That was mm. a big part of what I came away from. And the, and the downloading, if you will, the sense of working with Dr. Rick, Ken Ring and uh, Ken, I call him Ken, Dr. Kenneth Ring, um, came to really conclude that Consciousness is never born. It's never. It never dies. It's it's beyond beyond beginning and beyond ending. Whatever consciousness is, yeah. whatever it is, this thing is this. I think life makes a great deal more sense, even empirically speaking, and in the terms of parsimony. You know, the principle of parsimony in science is the idea: of what what is safe to believe without the with the fewest extra yes. assumptions yep. that are added. Well, the, rather than the basic question, which is called the hard, con, the hard question of, of consciousness in the philosophy of mind, there's a, there's a conundrum called the hard question of consciousness. And it goes like this. How 
if the if the world is comprised of dead matter, building blocks called atoms. Remember those first. Remember the books we read that the world is made of at building blocks of matter called mm -hmm. atoms, electrons and neutrons, and then there's photons, and all of it begs the question: What is any of that? Well, it's just it's inert very much subatomic anyway we can't find it by the way subatomic physics can't find matter yeah. anything called matter well how does consciousness if if matter is the ground of our being if the material a material world is the ground, how did it become self-conscious how did how did the capacity to taste the sweetness of cherry to feel the disappointment of heartache the uh pain of a broken ankle subjective experience how did it arise out of this dead matter? That's the hard problem of consciousness. Well, the principle of parsimony says, what is our primary, what is the ontological prime? What is the sole prime given experience of experience other than experience? In other words, experience yeah. is the ground Exper of being. Yes. And experience, consciousness is that, space in which we can imagine that matter is the ground of being yeah what yeah that, that the material world the the speculation of how consciousness emerges out of dead matter is a speculation that emerges out of consciousness everything consciousness is the only carrier of reality that we ever know we, we never have any so in terms of the principle of parsimony we could posit that consciousness is the prime. How does it create an experience of an outer world called matter? That's a good question. Yeah, it's but you go to that from the ground that consciousness is a given. It doesn't emerge out of matter. It can't emerge out of, there's no way to deduce the properties of subjective experience, the sweetness of cherries, the pain of heartache, mm -hmm. why one thing matters more than another, why something is meaningful, doesn't come out of dead matter. Yeah. It couldn't. Dead matter is an appearance that seems something we need to figure out what that is. Anyway, that's kind of a, a shift I've had around all of that. And others have. Bernardo Castro, as you know, the, the philosopher of mind who's in Holland, uh, very, very clever, very, very wise and thoughtful current philosopher in, 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 what, in his tradition, which he calls analytic idealism. The world is a place of mentation. This is a world of mind. You can say it's all consciousness. It sounds really good because the, the great wisdom traditions say so. But there is a sense in which, well, what about all this hard stuff? Well, what is that? It's an it's sensation. What is like you know? There's a, there's a famous story that that uh, Bishop Barclay, the I, the philosopher of idealism, uh, came to this conclusion centuries ago, and he was walking along with some other philosopher and he said, he said well, what, what do you think of my theory that it's all mind? He said, he kicked a rock and he said, that's what I think of your theory. Explain that. If it's all mind, what about the rock I just kicked? And the upshot of it was, well, what is it about that rock? The density of it. What is density? Equality. It's a sense, the heaviness of it. What is heaviness? It's a quality. It's heavier rather than lighter. That's quality, qualitative. Yes. 
experience. It stubbed my toe. It hurt. It hurt. That's an experience. That's qualitative. What we do is we say this is heavy and it weighs five pounds. Then we believe the description five pounds of weight pre-existed the experience. Yeah, exactly. It's the horse in front of the cart. 100%. It's back, and it is. And so <laughs> it's actually, part. it's actually the, the three guys who just won the Nobel prize in science for physics. We're dealing with some of these things. I can't summarize it here, mm -hmm. but you might want to look up if you haven't um, any listening, anybody listening, look up Nobel prize, quantum physics. Um, it's actually very, it's spooky. You know, they're basically what they got it for was confirming that there are evidences of what Einstein worked very hard to keep, keep at bay. He, he didn't, he couldn't understand how we could have action at a distance. Mm -hmm. uh, it had to be that, you know, the, the efforts that were made by Einstein and others explain, well, there still must be some physical principle that if you carry that rock to Japan and I have another rock that was previously paired with it, and they still seem to be linked. Well, there must be an intervening material principle. Well, really? I mean, the efforts to save the salvage, the implications that we live in a world of mentation or mind consciousness, it doesn't mean that the sense of anything has to change. We still have all the empirical evidence of life, but it isn't dead matter that has to suddenly explain yeah. how did it become self-aware? That's no longer the issue. So it doesn't mean that you resolve it and you have pat answers, but there's a certain sense of a living with the mystery of all of it that is much more exciting. Well, I got to say, Keith, um, I thought that talking about my experience and your death experience would lead us to some cool places, and it definitely did <laughs> because that was an absolutely brilliant uh stream of consciousness on consciousness on experience um it's just fantastic and we've talked we talk about this stuff all the time and i'm glad that the listeners are going to get in, getting a little sneak peek of our many awesome phone conversations and uh, this kind of stuff that we explore because it's just i mean I, there's like nothing else i really there's other things i would like talking about and i'm interested in but it this is this is the fundamentals of you know, our day-to-day moment-to-moment experience is what is it that is aware? And it's, it's the, the first step that's missed by um, so many people and so many experts and so many that are, that are asking the deep questions of, of reality and who we are and what we're doing here is what is, what is it that is aware? You know, as you're saying, um, you know, you can measure a rock and it weighs five pounds and that proves that this is a separate, you know, thing that, that eventually some form of that matter became alive through biology and eventually became humans. And we're this very complicated thing that suddenly became self-aware and became able to measure these things that were already there. All the, the rock weighed five pounds the whole time, but, you know, we finally became intelligent enough to be able to go and measure it instead of going back to as you said, the, the, the parsimon, pars, the least parsimon. parsimon, the parsimonious, the, 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 the parsimony is the most parsimonious explanation is the one that requires fewer leaps. For example, we don't, logic, we, yeah. we don't need to explain how do we get consciousness from matter. We don't need a separate category. We can't find a separate category called matter. We yeah. really can't. We can find we solidity. Can't find a, separate, a separate category 
beyond what we are aware of, what we measure, what we become conscious of, correct? Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. in the Buddhist tradition. There's a tradition of one taste, mm. that, that, that there's really one taste of all. There is still the radical diversity and the, and the absolute multi multitudinous yeah. quality of and, life. And, um, and Manyness is not and, erased by oneness. It's not yeah. that. It's in not the Tao Te Ching, they call it the 10,000 things, right? The, the one, the Tao is the 10,000 things and the one thing, right? And it's, it's the, the, the whole idea of the mind comes in and delineates. The mind breaks things into separate categories. And by mind, it's really the, the left brain, the more rational you know, that divides everything up and it says that's Keith and this is Nick and this is Nick's finger. And, you know, it, it puts everything into a neat category. And, and assumes that those categories pre-existed the categorization. Exactly. We live with the categories that does it. We live with the description. Well, I know you're there and uh, the light switch is either on, you know, binary thinking is true. Well, how do we know it's true? Well, it's axiomatically true. It's an axiomatically true that things are if it's if it's not B, if it's not A, it's B. It's mm. not on, it's off. We know that because we know it, because it's just the way it is. And then the conversation, we start to realize, well, that's just that's logical. But yeah. binary logic is a particular kind of logic. Aristotelian categorization is a is a is a is a, is a mythology. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a story. Mm. And it's true. A light switch is either on or off. It's not that and that's not a, true, but as, as the final yeah. truth, I don't know. I don't think we could say that it's the, there are, there are other kinds of logic called intuitional logic mm -hmm. that anyway, we, we, we designate things, we describe things, then we believe the descriptions preexisted the describing. We, we lose touch with the very being of, or the knowing, and we don't know what awareness is. That's the thing. We don't know what it is <laughs> and what consciousness is except it's our most reflexive, ontologically immediate experience. We open our eyes. I am. Yeah. I exist. Yeah. And, and then, but we then leave really fast. It isn't that the rock doesn't weigh five pounds, according mm -hmm. to the system in which weight is relevant. It's all the observations of materialist worldview are, they, they don't get, we don't have to get rid of them. They just have a new framework. In a, in a world of ideas, in a world of yeah. consciousness. We yeah. remember that we're the ones who describe things and we assume the descriptions preceded the describing. What does the describing? What is that? That's what yeah. the great traditions, I am, I exist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, as you're saying, the, the, the ontolog, do you say the ontological ground or like the ontological foundation is we know that Again, the lights are on. That there is that there is awareness, and that's and the default. We start with that, yeah. and we then we think, how do we explain how that came out of matter? No, that's backward. By the <laughs> way, this is only the three hundred years in which humans have. Let me tell you, look, there's a story around the time the from the shift from the Renaissance to the scientific era, the church had become very covetous toward these questions, as a growing number of scientists wanted to ask these questions scientifically, like Giordano, Giordano Bruno. Mm. Uh, he, had the, he had the misfortune of pushing the church too far. He was burned at the stake for claiming heresy, similar to what Galileo had done. Galileo said, look through my, micro, look through my telescope 
church fathers, you'll see what I see about the proper relationship between the sun and the earth. They said, we don't want to, we're not going to look through that. If you keep saying that, you'll be in serious trouble like Bruno. So there's a great passage by- That's so good, Keith. I just, you gotta, can you please repeat that for everybody? Cause that hit me so hard the first time. The church leaders wouldn't look in the telescope. Oh, they, by the way, that's they historically true. They didn't deny it. <laughs> they, they didn't look they, and go, they, no, there's no, nothing there. They refused to look inside the telescope. They refused yeah. to look oh, through yeah. the telescope. He said, well, I'm not asking you to take it on faith, because it, that, which is a great statement, because the church promise, premises are faith premises. Uh-huh. So he's basically saying, I'm not even asking you to take it on your turn. I'm saying you can use this thing. Well, I don't know what the church actually claimed this telescope is. Was it a was it the eye of the devil? It could have been. This, this, no, we're not looking through it. And if you continue to say this, you'll be in house arrest. Mm-hmm. He continued to say it, and he did spend the rest of his life in house arrest. Something around 1966, the Vatican uh, went back to that case and confessed error. Wow, and they did it very, uh, oh, they were doing a little bookkeeping. Oh, and as far as the Galileo incident, uh, he was right. Thank you. We move on. Everything else we ask you to take on faith is still true. But so here's the point. Around that time, one of the philosophers of the Enlightenment, uh, Denis, Denis Diderot, wrote a letter to one of his colleagues, fellow uh, empirical rationalist, actually atheists. They were so turned off by the church's opposition to exploring the natural world. They made the decision you could only be an atheist. That's, in my view, not required. But the point is, Diderot said to one of his colleagues in a letter, the church says we are not to, impe- we are not to intervene in the, in the inner life. We're not to pass judgment on spirit or mind. Well, we'll work with what we call the material world. And then Diderot said, a materialistic view of the world doesn't really work but we'll take it as a cover so that we will not be burned at the stake like Giordano, Giordano, Giordano Bruno. It was now, a- you unpack that statement. He said, yeah. we'll do our investigations of the material world, but even they were already men of, who realized that consciousness or mind or essence or spirit preceded everything else. They created a pragmatic all right, we'll move over here. We'll work with matter. And the church says, oh, good. Matter is not real. You guys can have matter. You can work with numbers and quantity and spin and mass and velocity. And you can take, go run, go to town, go to town. Newton, Newton, play with this stuff. Copernicus, the universe is all clockwork. Yeah, do that. But the church got the inner life. Hmm. The church got interiority. And the scientists were allowed to play with this realm of matter, which Diderot essentially admitted didn't exist. But it, they could work in the form of, they could work in a domain of reality as long as they didn't call it something that would compete with the church. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a great parado- parado- uh, parable for the uneasy way the material universe came to be seen as separate from consciousness for pragmatic reasons. These were men who had seen Bruno get burned at the stake. They didn't want to have that. So they satisfied themselves by doing geology, chemistry, working with the dead stuff called matter, all the time aware that, well, wait, we are conscious. 
but the church has claimed priority on consciousness. So we'll, I mean, it's, it's, it's this is factual, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Diderot yeah. wrote that letter saying, it's not a good model. Materialism, as we're defining it, isn't plausible, but it keeps us from being killed. We can yeah. do what we want to do. We do alchemy on the side. We'll keep doing sp- stuff that the church thinks it has. We'll do it in the name of. So this is why matter and mind have always had this coexisting, confused relationship in the Western tradition. Yeah. Now, yeah. here's the funny thing. The fun thing is that the church and the, the, the role of the church these days, as you know, is being played by science in the sense that scientists are now rationalistic science says to the field of parapsychology and paranormal studies. Oh, that doesn't exist. That doesn't exist because consciousness, there can't be synchronicities. Mind and matter. Can't, oh, that's purely coincidence. So the UFO, as you know, I'm studying the UFO phenomenon. I'm writing about the presence of the UFO as this strange bobber. I use it symbolically speaking. The UFO lurks as one of the last windows into, it's an anomaly. The UFO is an anomaly. Paranormal experiences are anomalies. What is an anomaly? They're not intrinsically anomalous. They're anomalies to the materialist worldview. They don't fit. That's what makes them anomalies. And as anomalies accumulate, there's probably, but well, there's going to be a bit, this is the hope, there will be, maybe not even in our lifetime. But the way Thomas Kuhn, in his wonderful book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which studied paradigm shifts, how, do, how does an existing paradigm come to have so many anomalies that it gathers the attention of a new generation of scientists who study the anomalies. For example, the near-death experience is a very good example. As a body of experience, when they first came in, the materialist scientists, oh, those are just brain uh, firings. The sense of an afterlife, of course, is an enduring archetype. It might be Jungian at best, but the brain has these patterns they play. There is no afterlife. It's a no, no, no. But there are too many anomalies now. The near-death experience, the UFO phenomenon, uh, the widespread recognition that telepathy, telepathic experiences happen, precognitive experiences happen. Mm-hmm. And we learn to say, well, that was just a coincidence. Yeah, we kind of learned to, because our, we're, we're trained in an assumption that assumes separation and division. Right. But yeah. hopefully with enough anomalies from enough direction, a new worldview will begin to sort of, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, 50, 200 years from now, the new books of science will be written and somehow paranormal stuff will be part of reality. And there won't yeah. even be a chapter on how it was fought. That yeah. will be maintained by other, someone will write a book about that. But uh-huh. actually, as someone has said, when the UFOs are finally, or, by the way, when, as UFOs, I don't know what they are. They're not yeah. necessarily extraterrestrial spacecraft. There's an anomaly of, mind and matter and light that interacts with witnesses that turns off cars that seems to take human beings inside dome-like structures appear experientially so mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. yeah maybe these are alternative dimensions of reality i don't know but the point is phenomenologically there's something going on that can't be explained 
in the current scientific parameters. That's the key. And when it's eventually acknowledged to be a part of nature, the debunkers will actually claim credit. <laughs> they will actually be there first at the science conferences to say, well, we were saying all along that we were open to the possibility that, the, no, you weren't. <laughs> we have you on tape ridiculing the witnesses. Oh, no, 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 no. Pay no attention. Pay no attention. We <laughs> discovered UFOs. We've been saying all along that paranormal phenomena are real. That's always yeah. the way it is. The ones yeah. who write the story claim to have discovered the anomalies. But in any case, knowledge does advance. Yeah. One more story along the same lines. Around the 1700s, there were villagers reporting throughout the United States that rocks were falling from the sky. The learned men of the time in the academy said, no, they aren't. That isn't happening. So they would bring the learned men from the academy into the fields and point out these rocks, which had signs of burn, burn, burn marks. The first hypothesis of the learned men of the academy, the rationalists, was, oh, these are rocks that have had lightning. Lightning has hit these rocks. And these poor villagers thought the rocks came from the sky. Yes, these are rocks and there are burn marks. Well, the burn marks was that they were actually called meteors, mm -hmm. meteorites. Yeah, but that didn't fit into and they, the- So they were coming, there were rocks yeah. coming from the sky and landing in the field with burn marks. So one minute they were, couldn't be happening and they weren't happening. The next minute they were, and the men of science got credit. They discovered meteorites, just <laughs> like Columbus discovered America. Well, tell that to the people who were living here. You didn't discover shit. <laughs> We were already living here and it's not ours anymore. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot of territory, but that's, that's a lot of really awesome territory. Actually, I, you did mention one thing, which I, I, one of my favorite metaphors of yours, if we could revisit, you mentioned UFOs as the bobber on the, on the surface. Um, could you, could you go into yeah, I'll that? I'll that a bit. It's a, it's a yeah. metaphor I like because it's like, imagine just, you know, just think of a fishing situation, a fish, uh, going by the way, a fish is the last, you know, the Chinese aphorism that fish is the last to know that it lives in water. Of course. Because it's the yeah. only medium it knows. It doesn't know of water or non water. And there's no speculation about it. This is just where we live. It's like in the wonderful novel by Richard Bach, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Jonathan was the one bird that wanted to fly for the fun of it. Yeah. He loved doing all his massive maneuvers. And the other members of the flock were scandalized by it. We live to catch fish. Yeah, That's all we live for. Oh, okay, so with that in mind, um, one day a fish is swimming and notices this luminous thing on the, well, doesn't quite know it's on the surface, but it's a bobber. And there's also a line with a hook. But in any case, there's a bobber. And the bobber is there on the surface and the fish sees it and goes back and tells the other fish, I saw this thing and it's on the surface of the surface of the, on the edge. You've been to the edge and you've seen something. You stay home. You, you, you imagine too much. Yeah. Well, long story short, the fish come to learn that there is a surface and the bobber is, a, is the is on the surface between the water and a whole other atmosphere, atmospheric element called oxygen, called the air, called dry land. So metaphorically, I use the image of the UFO as, I mean, we see them in the sky. They appear to be oval. Mm. 
the uh, Jacques Vallée, the great French UFO researcher said, what if we would see these as windows rather than as objects? Yeah. Well, there's another metaphoric shift. The UFO is a window, the window to another or larger reality. A bobber is the line of demarcation. It's the object between one realm and another, water and air. So the UFO, in a sense, is like a bobber for us. We see it moving through the sky. We tell stories about it. The debunkers say, no, that's the, that was a misidentification of the moon. Or that was the Starlink satellites. Or those were just flares. And sometimes they are just flares. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they yeah. are satellites. It's both. It doesn't mean the mundane explanations are never true. Mm -hmm. But there's like maybe 10% that some other that hide. The 10% of real hide in the belief that they can't be real. Mm -hmm. So the phenomenon appears in a way that can effectively annihilate existence of itself because the official authorities, the official agents of the culture reassure us it's nothing unusual here, people. Go yeah, back home. Uh -huh. Go back home. Return to your homes, people. The debunker, and by the way, I'm I'm all for genuine skepticism. I don't make I don't confuse debunkers with skeptics. Genuine skepticism is should be baked into everything we do, every mm -hmm. observation. Was that a real perception? Was it, could I have been fooling myself? I mean, skepticism is the way we check ourselves, but debunkerism is a bad critical habit yeah. of trying to, it's an ideological. It's operation. the other side of blind faith. It's the other side of, yeah. Very much I, so. I, I believe, you know, I believe the, the Bible is true because it's written by God. How do you know? Because it says it in the Bible, right? The, the, the other side of it, the, the debunker that says, well, it's it's all fake, and and I can, they come with that presupposed, you know, uh, endeavor. So so there there is no true. Can can you talk a little bit about your your definitions? I love the way you talk about um, uh, empiricism, like what what true empiricism is when it comes to um, approaching something that you're looking into, researching, and just kind of yeah, in it's it's a it's a kind of a fancy word. We don't even use it very much. Like well, empirical reality. Empiricism is a school of, it came out of a school of philosophy and actually a school of science that William James, uh, really the great American philosopher, psychologist, uh, amplified with uh, his theory of radical empiricism. Empiricism is essentially, why don't we start with direct experience? What do people report? Start with at least, even in a material framework, in a materialist worldview, start with yeah. the five senses. People see things, hear things, taste things. Anything that can be experienced and observed can be studied. Oh, so for example, uh, the, I mean, the UFO phenomenon is a good case. A phenomenon is what appears. We don't know what's behind the sightings, but empirically we can collect the witness reports. Empirically, and we can separate their appearance Empirically means we, we take at face value for the sake of this part of it alone. We say, yes, these are a body of reports. We don't say in advance it can't be true or that it must be true. Empiricism says we simply collect. Now, radical empiricism is when you extend that to all kinds of experience, and uh, including psychological, psychic experiences, for example, you can take an empirical approach to the idea of psychic phenomena. You can't hold a psychic phenomenon 
You can't hold a psychic experience the way you can hold something in the empir sensory empirical world. There's sensory empiricism and there's extrasensory. Let me give you an example of an empirical psychic experience. You uh, have a friend you haven't seen for 20 years. You haven't thought of the person very often. The phone ring. As you walk to the phone, you get a very sharp hit of this person. Yeah. Wonder whatever happened to Betty. You look at the caller ID, you don't remember the, you don't know the, the number, but you notice the area code. You pick it up. Hi, Keith, it's Betty. You didn't expect to hear from me. Okay, that's officially a coincidence in materialist science, in the mm -hmm. materialist worldview. You live long enough, you'll accumulate a few coincidences. They don't tell us anything about some natural, that, that meaning is so widely distributed. Meaning is built into the structure of reality. No, we don't go there. So that's an empirical experience. That's an empirical piece of evidence for telepathic knowing. Yeah. It doesn't change the whole it doesn't break the paradigm based on one case, but all of those moments of precognitive knowing, have you ever walked around a corner and on a street and instantly you walk onto the next street and you realize you saw that in your dream the night before, yeah. including the, the woman with the red coat. Yeah. And you look at her and she's looking at you like, what are you looking at? Whatever. Those, Jung wrote about these. So those are empirical. They're empirical. Materialists would say we shouldn't take them as real. Uh, the debunkers would say we shouldn't pay any mind. Why? Because they're not possible. No, 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 no. You've gone to the interpretive level. Exactly. They're not impossible in the same way that rocks falling from the sky weren't possible, even okay. though they were happening. There are lots of impossible phenomena, mm -hmm. including officially non-existent. The UFO phenomenon is still officially non-existent, except as many of our listeners may know, about a year and a half ago, the Pentagon did release a report of 400 cases and um, only one could not be explained and they felt that it could be explained. Maybe, maybe it was three, but the point is, um, they, a vast number of them are unexplained as well. That's the point. Mm -hmm. I think it was out of 400, a vast number of them were not explainable, officially unexplained. That doesn't mean we know what they are. But it says, finally, unexplained aerial phenomena are real as unexplained aerial phenomena. So empirically, what's real is there's something that we don't explain. What's yeah. empirical is not what we know what it is. Mm -hmm. That part hasn't been established yet. Yeah. Empirically, we have reports of credi credible reports of a phenomenon at least being real as unexplained. Yeah. It's true intellectual honesty, and it's it's true like personal humility to to not be so ignorant to believe that just because something is phenomenal phenomenal is non-explainable is is to, we're gonna we're gonna put that in the box of well then it's of no interest to us when constantly there's things that are are unexplainable that have incredible value to us personally to us as a culture and. It, it just giving up on the fact of even pursuing it or even saying that it, it's it's uh, worthy uh, to investigate, you know, cuts ourselves off from 
expanding our reality, expanding. Well, our, there was our, a famous uh, debunker named Philip Class back in the 1960s, K-L-A-S-S, who was the editor of Aviation Week. He, he, he became a hobby debunker. He didn't call himself a debunker. He simply was a rational, critically, criti critically minded guy who went into this crazy field of ufology, UFO research. And he, at least at one point, I don't know if he ever fully understood the consequences of what he would, was admitting when he said this, but he told one reporter one time, it sounds like, Mr. Clash, you're saying that if we knew enough about every UFO report, we would find that they all have mundane explanation. Class didn't miss a beat. He said, exactly. That's my position. Well, there's many ways to describe that position, but it ain't science. Yeah. Because you don't say in advance if we knew it's it's purely hypothetical anyway. But to say in advance, if we knew everything that we needed to know, we would be able to explain them all prosaically is not the way not the way, say the great Richard Feynman, the great physicist, he would have said, those are the ones we want to investigate, the ones that don't have the continue to yeah, they continue to outdistance our, we, good, we separated 90%. Those were misidentified, those hallucinations, hoaxes, mm -hmm. uh, or misidentified natural or unnatural. Okay, let's put those, good, take them out. It's called the phenomenological cut. You separate, well, the, in, so what you do, you separate all the, there's 10% left, only one out of 10. Philip Classes say, well, the odds are, according to a certain kind of logic, even that one that remains out of the 10 will be explainable. Again, whatever that is, it ain't science <laughs> because it's just not how science works. They said, let's see what the, if there are, if there are features or traits of, of a phenomenon that aren't reducible to the known categories, that is, that is what Richard Feynman and many others what they, that's what drives the true seeker into science. Yes. Richard Feynman called it the kick of discovery. What mm -hmm. is it that keeps you going, Dr. Feynman? He said it's the kick of discovery, of finding out something is this or not this, or is that or not that. There's yeah. nothing more satisfying than that. Yeah. Not deciding in advance that it can't be in the name of propping up the existing paradigm. Yeah, that's I get the appeal religious, of that too. Like we all said. have things we, we fight for. We fight for, you know, we get, we get positioned. This is my belief. Well, I don't need any evidence. I already seen, well, you might be a little stuck there. Yeah. We all get stuck in our own lives, you know. Of course. Um, I mean, when just one that's coming to mind is the, the think about it in, in 20 years period of time, the lesbian, gay, bisexual thing yeah. has gone from being that's, it's gone to social acceptance as, a, as an expression, as a possibility, so that human beings who knew they were gay or lesbian or bisexual finally have acknowledgement that they're not, they don't belong over here in the wastebasket. With yeah. the, uh, we, we, we're not, we, are, we are like meteors. We exist. Yeah. We exist. Exactly. Yeah. Now we're going through a period of time when we need to display flags every June for 30 mm -hmm. days. It's a reminder of, how much time we spend in denial on that phenomenon, we probably have yeah. to now have an extended period of honoring the truth so mm -hmm. that we can get on with not even acknowledging the difference exactly. as much as we do. Yeah. So there's always the anomalies. I mean, the, the, even the very idea of anomaly, what doesn't fit? Well, yeah. 
tracking the anomaly can lead to the recognition, oh, maybe it is explainable. Okay, good. That's, that's a problem solved. Yeah. But there are all kinds of anomalies that lead to the recognition. You know, the larger issue, Nick, is that reality is larger than our, the territory is always larger than our maps. Yes. So we find the, the map of meteors didn't, there wasn't on the map, but mm -hmm. it was part of the territory. Mm -hmm. It was happening. No, and no, the poor we people didn't observing it, it happened to be the yeah the bumpkins out in the field who didn't have education. It was easy to them. Oh, the bumpkins have been seeing more flying rocks. <laughs> and even Thomas Jefferson was among the was among the debunkers. He said, "Oh yes, the the poor benighted villagers." Well, now meteors are not only part of the territory; they're part of the map. Yeah. So. And what a world! What a world to live in to believe that the map completely encompasses the territory. To really believe that we got reality figured out. That there's a little bit here and there. You know, we're gonna find the the Higgs boson, whatever the next one is there. But we got we got a, a you know everything. Like what a dead, like unwondrous, unchildlike world to live in. Like I I love the idea of we have a piece you know mapped out. But the territory is so large, you couldn't even fit it into your imagination if you tried to. And we, we live in a world where we are, we are trying to expand the map. And, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more poetry than science. Sometimes it's a little bit more science. And, you know, that, that, that's what we're here to do. We're not here to, to believe it's dead, to say that we have the answers. And everything that fits outside of our answer is just, oh, that's just a mistake. That's, that's just, all noise you know. and no signal. Yeah. Well, and that's why I hear every now and then some people in our line of thinking agreeing with us. They say, yes, science is reductionistic. And I go, no, no, it isn't science that's the problem. It's the particular application. It's fake science. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, when it's an science, ideology within It's science. when science resorts to its ideological ed. And, and as I said, uh, just as it was the, uh, the church who was putting Galileo in, in, uh, in house arrest, it is now the scientist who would who hound, I mean, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of house arrest. If you know of, of, of Rupert Sheldrake, he's a renegade biologist who <laughs> believes that evolution happens through the transmissions of form, <laughs> morphic resonance rather than, anyway, so in any case, he's a philosopher of science who believes consciousness is intrinsic to all of reality. It's baked in. It's a meaningful, alive universe. Intelligence is brimming. And he's also an empiricist. He looks at, he does studies of how dogs seem to know their masters are coming home. He's a wonderful study. How do dogs know their masters are coming home? Well, they hear the car. The problem is the car was well over a mile away when the dog began to run around the house with the camera watching. Well, it's not always the same time every day. What he, posited, what he posited was there's a psychic connection between the dog and the human. Every dog person knows that's true, whether they <laughs> believe it or not. Okay, the point is, Rupert Sheldrake and other brave scientists who are at the forefront of this sort of paranormal research, what's called paranormal. Paranormal is an unfortunate term. It's like normal, but it's not really normal. But that's the term, that's the category we've officially given to the paranormal. Okay. 
these guys end up getting their web page, their wiki pages destroyed by the rationalists. The yeah. rationalists go in and change their web pages because you can edit, you know, you have editing privileges at Wikipedia. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's a little bit like the, right now, in where you are and where I am, there can't, we're, we're approaching an election, right? Mm -hmm. When there's lawn signs. You know what often happens? The supporters of one candidate take the lawn signs of the other candidate. They take them off. Okay, that's like, that's considered spoil sport. Yeah. It's really a spoil sport to take their signs down. Isn't it a spoil sport to go to Rupert Sheldrake's wiki page because he believes heresies? You make his web, you make his wiki page look like he's a moron? Yeah. Or you, you debase what he's claiming, you put in stuff that said, this hasn't been proved. This is just a belief system. That's when science, so what I wanna repeat, science itself is not the problem. Science is what actually helped us correct a lot of the worst excesses of the prior age of religious of course. inquisition. Absolutely. Thank God for the scientific revolution, yep. the empiricists who said, we can see it through a telescope. Yeah. They want out. But now the ones with the telescopes are saying the new frontier is, since we took nature back from religion, now nature is in the hands of the scientists who won't allow for the possibility that actually some of what religion claimed, that the universe might have spirit in it, now gets framed as the universe might have mind in it. It mm. might be intelligent. And that is opposed by the scientists because they, they have a philosophy based on the assumption that it's not possible. Yeah. But nature is what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm not saying every claim of psychic phenomena is real, but I would say the preponderance of evidence is that what we call psychic phenomena are real, that actually the more we quiet our minds, the more we pick up on what's absolutely going on and it's yeah. more than we think. Yeah. I, I love, I love talking about intuition because I think there's so much uh, information that we can get about thinking about our own intuition, the intuition of other people and all that. I've been listening to Ian McGilchrist. I know we've talked about him before. Um, I've been listening to his audio book, the master and his, and his emissary, which is about the left. I've heard of that book. It's, it's, it's a big book. It's a uh, 27 hours uh, audio book. So it's huge. It's probably like a thousand pages or more. Um, but I was just listening today where he was talking about uh, schizophrenia and how he believes that basically most ner um, neuroscientists have schizophrenia sort of ass backwards. Um, one interpretation, this is my very, you know, blue collar, poor man's interpretation here, but interpretation of um, schizophrenia is that uh, what is what what is the right hemisphere, what's the more intuitive sort of gets the whole picture, but can't define um, individual parts um, becomes becomes so dominant that it sort of crowds out the the, the left hemisphere, the more rational. And you start seeing things that aren't there and you start hearing voices and you start doing, doing this and that. And what his argument is, is that actually it's a case of the two hemispheres becoming more divided because when they become divided, now when you hear those voices, those voices are that of the subconscious, 
or the unconscious, uh, or what we could say is, is intuition, right? And they, they're supposed to be at the right volume level, basically. And they're supposed to sort of, you're supposed to be able to, to know that sense, that gut feeling, the dog knowing that the owner's coming home, that sense when you hear the phone ring, you might know, know who it is that sense of danger, maybe I shouldn't hit that corner. And then, you know, you walk the other corner and all of a sudden you see a car crash, all, all those, you know, what we would call again, synchronicities um, that happen. That the, that the the left hemisphere is is doing that sort of calculation all the time, but it's not in your present direct consciousness, right? And this, is, this isn't woo-woo, this is 100% agreed upon by almost every single uh, neuro, uh, um, neurologists yeah. out there. Right. And so, um, what, what he says, it's a great example of how we've become so, uh, right, right hemisphere, left hemisphere dominant, rash, overly rational, rational, overly logical to believe that, well, the, the fact that schizophrenics, um, you know, buy into these imaginary, beliefs, these delusions, this and that has to be that, that the intuitive side is just too loud. And he's saying, no, the intuitive side is just, is, is not properly communicating with the, with the rational and the logical side. And I was just listening to this today and you, everything that you're talking about, about empiricism, about intuition, about all those senses, the psychic phenomena and all that really lines up with this. And it, it makes me think of, um, you know, um, I've talked a little about Ryan Holiday. He's the, the stoic writer. Um, he says, intuition is something that you have to earn, right? So people say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow my intuition. I'm going to follow my gut on, you know, uh, what I'm going to invest in. Well, what work have you done to be able to trust your intuition, <laughs> right? Exactly. So if, if you are a professional, if you put in your 10,000 hours in, uh, in your field of study, or in your profession, or in a sport, right? You can come to trust your intuition that I couldn't tell you rationally why when I saw that miss, miss on the basketball that I thought it was going to go this way and I went that way to get the rebound. But you come to trust your intuition because you put in your 10,000 hours getting rebounds, playing basketball or whatever, right? And yeah, and so that that's something that like, that is completely throwing out the baby with the bathwater. When you, when you come to not be able to trust intuition, to not be able to trust that there is some sort of a psychic phenomena, it doesn't mean that I can read your mind or you can read mine. But if you've, if you've put in the time to connect with that intuitive side of your, of your cognition um, with, with habit, with repetition, it's going to get better. It's going to get stronger and you're going to learn to be able to trust it more. Well, so, that's beautiful. I'm thinking too, and what's coming to mind is Bernardo, Bernardo Castrop has a aphorism that he uses in his, he comes back to this a lot. It's a saying. And he says, the mind is the bouncer of the heart. Mm. And what he means by that, the rational mind is the, and you know, the bar, bouncer in the bar, right? That's the bouncer or the, in the tavern. The rational mind is the bouncer of the heart, which means if the rational mind says that something is not possible, it closes down the possibility of knowing through your heart or knowing in another way. It yes. closes down on the possibility. So part of what we've got to do with some of these issues is to tell the bouncer to 
the mind, the rational part of them. I mean, this is where true empiricism would, the bouncer is the debunker. He says, it's not possible. Yeah. It's not happening because it can't be happening. Um, so that part has to back off. And true skepticism is, I don't believe these phenomena, but that's separate. What is your evidence? Show us your evidence. I will consider it. Yeah. It's like, you know, like, you know, Charles Darwin was not even a scientist. He was a British gentleman whose hobby was exploring nature. And he had the means to travel from one island to another, the Galapagos, and he saw the finches over here. He saw fossils over here. And he began being a man of intelligence and learned and uh, education. He, he formulated the theory of the descent of species, the origin of species through empirical research, gathering mm -hmm. fossils, literal. Yeah. That's what fossils are. We see them in museums. Well, what is the psychological equivalent of fossil collecting? It's collecting evidence. And it, what about yeah. this as a possibility? What if, imagine a natural, you know, natural history is just what I described. Darwin was a natural historian. He collected physical evidence and created a theory. He did natural history in present time. That same impulse to be a nat of natural history. What about the idea of the, a natural history of the future? Namely, if there are potentials that are present but are not fully developed in human nature, for example, what if psychic phenomena are actually widely distributed in human beings but are latent? They're not fully, they're not developed because to use uh, Donald Hoffman's stuff, evolution doesn't require us to, uh, to believe in, uh, survival doesn't, although the truth is arguably, Intuition does have survival yeah, value. Which is why maybe it's it's showing up more. In, why it's showing up more and, now that yes. we are headed for some potential reckonings with environmentalism and so on and so forth. But it, it could well be that the, the research that we could do on paranormal phenomena now, psychic phenomena, new capacities it are, uh, may be coming online for human beings. If so, to investigate those is to do a natural history of a future that we're living into. I love it. That is a far, think about life that way. Uh, and so empiricism means keeping your eyes and your ears and your heart open for evidence around you. Just observe. Empiricism means observe your, uh, your, your surroundings. There's another thing that William James said, in addition to celebrating radical empiricism, taking a radically empirical approach to experience of all kinds even experiences that are outside an established worldview. He also had another category right next to it. That is the dangers of over-interpreting mm -hmm. and of belief. Yes, he called it over-belief. He said, mm -hmm. we must be open. His first point was, we must be open to the most extraordinary experiences and the most extraordinary possibilities imaginable. And we must also guard against over-belief about those experiences. And those two, one without the other, the credulous mind open to everything, but never does any testing, never shows any skepticism, becomes the true believer. Yeah. The other side is the pure skeptic overrides curiosity. So if you're so concerned about overbelief, that you limit your experience to something very narrow because you don't want to be credulous.
You don't yeah. want to believe anything if there's not evidence. So that's when the bouncer of the heart is keeping a lot of evidence out of the bar. The yeah. bouncer has to back off. You can come through. You yeah. at the red line, you can come through. The other couple, you can come through. You know, the bouncer has to let more people in. Of course, at but least the bouncer of- also has to keep out the guy that's going to pick fights or the guy. That's right. That's, so that, that's part of it's the bouncer's job is to keep the bad yeah. guys out, but not, yeah. you know, not go too far in either direction. If the bouncer yes. doesn't do any bouncing, he's no good. Even yeah. if he's 300 pounds, he's just a softy. But <laughs> if he gets everybody out, uh, well, what kind of a night will it be? If, if, if no creative people are allowed in the bar. Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful metaphor. And that's something that I just personally, and I think we all, as we reflect on our lives, you know, uh, falling in love, especially romantic love, like the, the, the mind goes, this don't do it. What are you thinking? Like, you know, you're going to be exposed to, to heartache and heartbreak and, you know, they, they might play you for a fool and this, this, and that. And, you know, and, so you have to find that balance too. And then there's the person that jumps from one relationship to the next and falls in love with somebody after talking to him for an hour and does continually get their heartbreak and ends up getting money stolen and, you know, this, this and that. And so like everything in life, it is a balance, but that metaphor of the, the, the mind being the bouncer of the heart, you want a balanced, intuitive bouncer. You want a mind that can, can learn to trust this is this is something worth investigating. This is something worth opening up to and being vulnerable to, because in a way, it's like it, it allows you to be able to fall in love with life, to fall in love with experience, to fall in love with like the day to dayness of, of life itself. And that's a huge part of this is striking that balance. How much are you going to allow yourself to be open to, and and uh, you know proper discernment and what are the things that are truly dangerous for you know yourself and and your family and everything else in between. Um, I just think it's such a useful framing for, for everything in life, whether we're investigating, you know, going into the unknown or, or just our day-to-day decisions that we make in our relationships and, you know. You know, what's coming to mind, and I be, want to be very mindful about introducing this. That's an idea we've talked about before, but it, I want to introduce it with the recognition that we probably need to look near the end of the conversation. Okay. And maybe this is a going out idea but it's planting a seed for the next. And that is the Jungian idea of the tandem. There's a tandem relationship between two principles. And it is, and, and I remember we've talked about this before. It is the archetype of the puer, P-U-E-R. That's a Latin term for the spirit of youth. And the tandem relationship between the spirit of youth and the spirit of aging which is this another Latin term, senex, S-E-N-E-X. So the puer impulse in life and in a life is a recurring impulse to be drawn to the new, the novel, the charming, the charismatic, the new possibility, the new idea on the drawing board. And we love puer people. They are inspired. They're often spirited. They're often charismatic. I mean, who do we think of in in show business? James Dean. You might see a bit of it in Brad Pitt. Mm -hmm. Um, Johnny Depp in his when he was younger. I don't know. You can look at Hollywood this way. But so let's the puer spirit is that we all have them in our lives. 
Puer figures. We all have them in our own. We all have that principle in our, that's what gets us excited about something new. But because when it's unbalanced, it continues to crash and burn through endless relation, endless, everything new. Oh, the latest new. Then, you know, we say about those people, they never grow up. Yeah. He's the Peter Pan. You know, there are books written about the Peter Pan principle. And it's based on the Jungian idea that the Puer is a stunted human being. Mm-hmm. He never gets out of childhood. He's Peter Pan. Okay, the Senex figure then, the Senex. Who's the Senex? It's the wise old man. Now, the wise old man archetype. Now, the, what, what makes the wise old man wise? He looks at the new possibility. He says, That'll never work. <laughs> well, we need them around too. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I knew a guy who had that same idea. He crashed and burned. Stick with what's known. Yes. Well, okay. That's a good corrective. Mm-hmm. But if it becomes the totality, we know those Senex figures. Mm-hmm. They might be our fathers, our mm-hmm. stepfathers, the teacher who said, you'll never amount to anything. God, I had to have, fortunately, I had a few teachers who said, you're, you apply yourself and you're going to go to the stars. That was good to hear. <laughs> yes. That was good to hear. He informed the puer in me. Mm-hmm. Dream, reach, but hitch your wagon to a star. But, but, you know, make sure that it's got an anchor, you know. So the puer is the kite. The senex is the tail. Beautiful. That's a possibility. That will never work. It's a good balance to keep in your life. The, the spirit of the new, the discovery, and also just adjacent to it is, isn't that a lot like that other idea that crashed and burned? Yeah. Keep that in mind too. But if either one wins out in the Puer Senex, if the, if the eternal child or the old man wins out, with the Puer, it is the new projects that never come to fruition because he never goes to second base. The Senex is actually the bitter, depressed, old guy caught in structure. He knows the structure. He knows the rules. And that ain't possible. The debunker is a Senex figure. Mm -hmm. True skepticism is actually a balance between both. The genuine inquiring skeptic has the eyes of a child, but has some grounding, like, okay, test it, find out. So... Puer, P-U-E-R, and Senex, S-E-N-E-X, James Hillman in particular is the Jungian writer who's really developed these ideas best. But as the shorthand, the spirit of novelty in any moment Mm -hmm. and the spirit of let's go slow, let's question it. It might not work, but let's not shut it off prematurely. Yeah. I think that was, I know we've talked about the Puer and Senex. It's a really amazing framing for and and it's actually informed so much of the decisions i've made in my own life that's part of the reason i started writing was a lot of those conversations um showed me in ways that i was being more of a puer and coming up with the next great idea and the next great idea but not putting in the the day-to-day practical work that it would take to to improve in a skill such as writing or such as whatever um very, very cool introduction. I think that's a good teaser. Maybe we could do an entire podcast on <laughs> Puer and Senex um, and uh, uh, how it's informed your life. I just, if you have a, a few minutes, um, I would like to sort of bookend this 
conversation, this podcast, uh, with a little bit of talk about, I mentioned to you that I have been reading Seneca on the shortness of life. Um, and uh, one of the big things that's changed since last time you and I have talked on the podcast is that I have been writing regularly. Um, I just took it upon myself to sort of uh, start my own apprenticeship. This is something that was calling to me for a long time. I, I hit a certain point in my life. I was 33 years old or 32 about really when I, I said, um, uh, you know, I have only so much time right in this lifetime. I felt the shortness of life. I had mastered a certain skill, um, you know, in my field of electrical engineering and I put in my decade of hard work and served two apprenticeships and it sort of felt that I'd hit this point. I go, well, I mean, I could continue another 10 years to refine and become, you know, a master at this, but it doesn't feel like the best use of this lifetime. I want to learn something else. I want to master something, not uh, for the recognition, not for the money. You know, obviously wouldn't have a lot of other things that could have paid a whole lot better, but for the love of um, learning a skill, mastering something for its own sake, and I meditated on this and thought about it and journaled on it for a long time. And something that continually came up was, was writing because writing has this um, exponential positive nature to it, that when you become a better writer, you're not just better at writing, you're a better communicator. You speak better, you, uh, you take in information in a different way well, you become a better thinker. You bec that one hundred. You took the words right out of my mouth. No, I often don't. I write. I sit down to write. So I'll, I don't. I hold your thought. Yes. No, I want you to continue. But I increasingly find that I find out what I think by yes. writing, sitting down to write what I think I think. Uh -huh. I'm a little bit like a novelist sometimes. I'm not a novelist, but I, the novelist will often. Some great novelists will say, "I never intended to kill off that character, <laughs> but it was necessary." Yeah, yeah, and I miss so it. Yeah, because yeah. the story required it. He didn't know. Well, likewise, I sit down to, to write what I think I think, yeah. and I realize in the process of writing and shaping it, I said, "No, that isn't fully what you think. What you think, it's coming through." So anyway, I just was affirming no, that in it's you. Be it's beautiful. So I agree in in two senses. One, what when I go to sit down to write an article. I always believe I know exactly what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. And in the process of writing a thousand words, 1500 words, 2000 words, I finish that article always having changed my own mind in some small way or in other times, some big way where I go, I didn't even know that I thought about this in this way or in this detail. And the process of writing itself shows me what I think and how I feel about things. And that alone, again, if no one ever even reads it, the personal reward of understanding yourself and how you feel about things and processing something out is, it's just been, and, and it gets better with time. The better, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the more you learn about yourself and the more you learn about um, the depth at which you feel and, and think about things. I was going to say, even, even further on that, you learn how to think better. I notice when I have an hour-long drive, I used to listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks. I still do listen to music. 
every now and then I'll purposefully keep the audio off and I'll drive in silence and I'll think like intentionally. And it's not mind wandering in the way it was before my writing where it's kind of like one thing to the next and all over the place. Meditation probably helps with this too, but I can like stay on topic and think something out in a way that I never could before I wrote regularly. So on an hour long drive, I can pick a topic, whether it's something in my life, some important decision that I have to make or something I want to write about. How am I going to communicate this, you know, this idea? And like, I think more efficiently, like I'm, I'm more concise and coherent in my actual thoughts to myself, to an audience of one. And that was a complete surprise. I haven't heard many people talk about that. Um, well, see, or, what you're describing, I just want to come in on, because, and again, to continue, not to interrupt, but you just said a few minutes ago that the, the difference between the kind of uninformed intuition, mm-hmm. uh, you were quoting uh, one of your writers, uh, one uh, of your... Ian McGilchrist. Y- yes. Yeah. Was, it, was that the one? Because you were oh, saying... Oh, Ryan Holiday. Yeah. Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday, who was saying, uh, oh, I'm going to follow my intuition. And he goes, have you done the legwork yes. to make your intuitions valid? Well, your decision to turn off the radio and to allow a different kind of, is your opening, you're doing some work there. You're doing, you know, the old saying, success favors the prepared mind. Yes. So you're doing some work. You didn't just say, see, there's a difference between, I'm just going to wait. Many people, I hear many so-called writers who want to write. I just sit in front of the blank page all the time. Nothing comes through me. Well, uh, did you pick up the paper? Did you just write, just start writing nonsense words? Yeah. Write a sentence over and over, copy a poem you like, mm-hmm. do some jumpstarting, jumpstart the process in some way. Yeah. It doesn't feel automatic. What's your picture of this? <laughs> that you are a channel for the gods? Well, <laughs> a little bit of legwork to help the gods. They're actually talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. The spirits are trying to come through you, but you're so wait, you're so bound and determined to wait for the, what do you wait? How do you know? Anyway, you, you're yeah. talking about making yourself available in that car and tuning yourself. You tuned yourself. Yeah. So something could come through. You're doing your part of it. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's, and, and it's one of those things, the more you do it, the, the easier that channel comes through you know, and it's, it's been one of the most rewarding things in my life. So talking about Seneca, the shortness of life, talking about how much time uh, we have here, you know, the article that I wrote the other day, Memento Mori, remember that you will die. Um, Again, going back to that, that moment that I talked about um, looking at the, down the barrel of the gun for the second time and feeling both the sadness, but also the peace and the contentment something that came to my mind in that moment was part of the reason I felt okay was because I've been writing and the whole motive of the writing was I want to leave something behind for my daughters to read, not at the age they're at now, but at an older age, I always imagine them maybe right out of college or maybe, you know, in college or just having graduated. Um, And, With that motive, I sit down and I write the best lessons and the most valuable things I want to communicate to them. I I haven't, knock on wood, I haven't hit writer's block. I, I, you know, I don't sit down and wait for inspiration. I got things to say to my daughters and it hasn't slowed down and it's grown since I've started doing this. 
And again, getting back to that moment of like, I, I felt like I had done the homework in a way. And, and afterwards, within the next day, you know, I, I went home, I went to my buddy's home, I rested, I got up the next day, I got my car rekeyed and all that. I was sitting down at the laptop writing, like that afternoon, because I felt like the urgency of like, yeah, man, you know, you, it was all sort of theoretical, you don't know how, how long you have, and this whole idea of writing to leave something behind for them and to share with the world and, and this and that. But it, it wasn't as theoretical at that point, it was like, you faced it. And, and I've felt ever since, again, it's not out of scarcity or fear. It's out of this appreciation that I've been given this gift of life and time and fingers that work and a mind that works well enough that I can translate something onto the page. And I, I, we've talked, you and I have talked a lot about writing. I've learned so much about how to approach it and everything like that. I just wanted to bookend this conversation with my little piece on that and uh, how you think about your project, your life project of, of writing. And, um, you know, I know we could do an entire podcast on it, but just what you think about, again, when that comes to the idea of mortality, the idea of um, your place here and the work that you're doing through writing and communicating. And that's a question to me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't sure if you were raising it as a larger question or, yeah. um, well, it's actually, and, and, and again, this is, I just said, we go out on one thing. This is, this is another, this is a much larger conversation, but yeah. I, I have the fortune right now, as such as it is to be working on a book. I, I'm just so the listeners will know I'm doing a, a book on the UFO phenomenon. And, and it's not from a believer standpoint, it's really from a chronicling the, um, the phenomenon as a happening that we're trying to make sense of as an interpretive challenge is Hermes from the Greek pantheon of gods. The connection, the relevance of this, as you know, I happened some decades ago to do, write my first book called Angels and Aliens. So it also about the UFO phenomenon. When you're doing two books about UFOs, you must be really, really, really a UFO devotee. And this, as you know, I'm not. I'm not in the UFO movement. I'm not a UFO advocate of any particular theory. It's a very contentious little field of competing theories. What I am is just imagine it's any other topic. I've done two books on it. So that's the key. That's what I want to refer to. Forget the UFO as the subject. It's I'm actually got getting a second, second chance to reach for the brass ring, if you will. Yeah. For some reason, who knows? This is where the life piece we don't know comes in. I did not expect when I first gave a report in the sixth grade in the current events section on the UFOs and flying saucers at age 12. If someone with authority to Keith, you will be doing this many decades hence. You're going to, I mean, I, I don't want to tell listeners that I've been singularly focused on UFOs just because I've done two books, but it's one subject that I'm doing two books on. And that's, again, that's the part I want to reference. Forget that it's about UFOs. It could be about fly fishing in Montana. This is my second book on fly fishing. So what is it that I'm completing? Later in my life, I'm working on the same 
same subject as earlier in my life. I'm very aware of that. Mm -hmm. I'm very aware of the maturation in myself. It's actually a very good, you know, most writers do, they are aware of how they've matured. But if you're not, if you're literally doing the same topic a few decades later, you get a chance to get a, a really good reference. sense. Well, I'm approaching these same ideas, but with a different, deeper register. Yeah. So that's something I'm very grateful for, that I'm using the same subject, but my return to the subject is informed by experience, oh, yeah, insight, right. yeah. wisdom. Yeah. So in that regard, I would give it back to you and say that while you're talking about a second venue other than your work as an electrical engineer, be aware that you are taking what you learned in electrical engineering beyond yeah. the content of which wire connects with which pole and all of that. Mm -hmm. But the very idea that a wire does connect with one pole or another, that there is a right way. There are courses to follow. And in yeah. your, as you know, in electrical engineering, if you don't follow those, you might yeah. electrocute yourself. It'll be detrimental, yes. That, 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 detrimental <laughs> is, a very broad, is a much broader term. So there is an alchemy yeah. to electrical engineering. There is a precision and, and yet there's still, um, electrical engineers are always figuring out new things yeah. about how to build, about how to configure. So whatever that alchemy is, you're bringing that in. In fact, I've been guessing that part of the fact that you don't have writer's block is you also don't have electrical engineering block. Yeah, you do exactly. what's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. You do what the job is. You may not know how to get this one, how to get the electricity from this part of the building to that, or why, where is it shutting down? Where's the dead zone? I'm sure those, okay, you got you to gotta troubleshoot. Yeah. But you got to troubleshoot. There's no question about whether to troubleshoot. It's not working. So you've got to troubleshoot. So you try to make it effective. Those are the same. You're taking that into writing. Yeah. So it's another venue. Your psyche said, okay, I'm kind of done with electrical engineering, but I'm not done with figuring things out. I yeah. want to figure it out in another zone, parallel, that'll give me a sense of something new. Because it is new. It, but it's, it's working with, sentences and structure and, and you know as you know it's not only the ideas coming through but you go back and go that's actually two sentences mm -hmm. that long yeah. sentence with the semicolon doesn't need a semicolon that's just two sentences. <laughs> i went to the play period and i saw an amazing production second sentence okay you know it, it's amazing i never could have guessed how fun that side of it, it is too it's like writing music you start to see you know, and, and I go back and read things that I wrote in March and April and I go, oh my God, like I'm so <laughs> embarrassed for how terrible it is and I can clean it up and edit it down. And I know a year from now, I'll be embarrassed about what I'm writing today. And that's okay. Like that's a part of the process. And, you know, some years ago, somebody, I don't know who it was. It might've been, I may, I may have a, a, a uh, rough version of this from someone like Rumi, right? But it's a aphorism that goes like a good idea is one that checks out in at least two states of consciousness, drunk and sober. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which means, here's the key, we've all had those experiences of, in, of puffing and inhaling or whatever the intoxicant is, and oh, we start writing down stuff and it is so good. Mm -hmm. And 
because, oh, this is, and you put it aside and the next morning when you're back in a sober state of mind, you read it and you, you're absolutely embarrassed what, what cringeworthy gibberish it is. Mm-hmm. It didn't make the transition from the right brain, from the, from the magic of the night before. Okay, yes. but then there's times when it does, when you're sober and you go, I was on fire last night. <laughs> I mean, for example, in a practical way, forget intoxicants, because I have found most intoxicants aren't useful for me. They're too heavy handed. <laughs> I'll, I'll be working on writing at the computer and drafting and spend two or three or eight hours if I'm not careful. And I get a little bit like stale or I'm, I'm struggling kind of hard to the same paragraph. I read that something get, breaks down in that paragraph. If I'm not careful, I'm going to rewrite too much. I'm, I, I need to get away. So I always, I've got time to run. I've got to go for a run. I want to go for a run. Mm-hmm. I get in my running clothes. I go out and the, whatever I was working on gets rewritten yeah. by entering another. I mean, literally my moving. I'm sure there's some good stuff in that psychologist. What was his name? Shek me sin Haile. I mean, on the flow state. The flow state guy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't ever say his name. I can't but, either. I know uh, he's that. now deceased. But yeah. I know there are. There's probably some good stuff on how when you when you if you're sitting and you do a lot of writing, then get up and yes. do something else yeah. because you'll 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 just In activate more. Yeah, so that's the analogy right. between drunk and sober. So then I come back. I even have had. I've learned to take a little um, fanny pack with me when I go running that has a little notepad and a pen. Because mm-hmm. I get so literal about this. If I have reached a writer's block, not really writer's block, but I've reached all the work I can do in my writing session, I go for a run. I have found myself not having a pen and not having a paper. And I think, can I keep it all in my head? Because I'm finally, I'm getting these downloads. So I, I'll pull over and I'll start to write and I rewrite the sentence. Now I have the transition. I realize that part goes in the other section. Mm. it's architecture it's yeah. remodeling so yeah, yeah I, I and i also then revisited the next day mm-hmm. i go okay that was actually a good transition i'm going to play with it a little more i'm now i'm going to let it go because you know you can get too obsessive you keep trying to don't fix what's already done yeah beautiful man well we have obviously many more podcasts to come in the future uh you know the gods permitting us the time. Yes, given what uh, we've been talking about, the exactly. mo- the, the, if we're both here. If this was the last one, it was a it was a really good finale. But let's, let's call it the last one. We'll go out on this one until we do the next one. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and we'll make a commitment to that. We'll cast our line, or you know, the fly fishing metaphor. We'll yes. cast the line out there and brought back a little bit, and we'll come back and. We've covered a lot of territory as we usually do. What people don't know is we have these three hour conversations every now and then. Yeah, they're one of my one of the best parts of my life, man, is our long alchemy. We have a marvelous (laughs) alchemy. Our deep, epic, long conversations, which we'll have a lot more of, I'm sure. And uh, and we'll record some of them too. So thank you so much, Keith. Thank you, Nick. Look forward to the next one. Right on.